I'm Chief Christy Giuseppe from WhatCopsWatch.com, and you're listening to another terrifying episode of Two Guys Talking Horror on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Have you ever had the feeling of being watched? Hidden eyes following you? A cold chill crawling up your spine? The hairs on the back of your neck standing straight up? Do you know what that is? It's fear. It's fear. Fear is the most basic human emotion tied into our instinct to survive. Fear gives us the means to overcome great odds or cripple us with paralyzing dread. Dread. But fear can also entertain. Turn off all the lights, lock your closet door, and ignore the sounds from beneath your bed. It's time for Two Guys Talking Horror. It's often credited as the first monster book. The granddaddy of all monsters. A novel that dared to ask the questions of not only the moral implications of playing God, but also, what is the purpose of life? What basic human needs are most important? What lengths will we go to to defend and or avenge them? And what actual right do we have to any of it? For over 200 years, it has spawned hundreds of film, television, stage, and comic book adaptations, inspired countless concepts that are now so associated with horror lore, they are one with the genre, and influenced hundreds of creators, artists, and storytellers to peek behind the dark side of science as well as the consequences of human curiosity. We are, of course, talking about Mary Shelley's masterpiece, Frankenstein, the Modern Prometheus. Join us as we dive into the history and legacy of the greatest monster of them all and celebrate the 200th birthday of Victor Frankenstein, the creature, and Shelley's triumphant horror novel, and discover why, after 200 years, it is still alive. Here, on this special episode of Two Guys Talking Horror. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. I'm one of your hosts, Nicholas J. Hearn. And I am one of the co-hosts, Jason Contini. And we are delighted. Not only are we doing a special episode all about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but we are joined today by someone that I admire because he is one of the original monster kids, John Contini. Thank you. You are welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. And I love being called a monster kid. Yes. And it dates back to the 1950s. Yeah. Probably with the creation of Famous Monsters magazine. Forrest Ackerman. Mm-hmm. Gotta love Uncle Forey. Uncle Forey, yeah. yep. Uh, we've actually brought John in today to help with some of the more nostalgic pieces of Frankenstein because 
he grew up a monster kid. He was exposed to a lot of the films we're going to be talking about later on in this podcast. In other words, I'm as old as Frank. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not you're not quite 200, and if you are, you're looking good. <laughs> but before we get to all that, let's do a little housekeeping. The Podcaster's Matrix. And I want to be sure to point all of our listeners over to the Podcaster's Matrix. If you're interested in starting a podcast, if you had a podcast once upon a time but just couldn't handle the stress of storing your podcast files, the folks over at Podcaster Matrix would definitely be able to help you out. Go check them out. We'll have a link to them over in the show notes for this episode. The Versus Machine is up and running, and Two Guys Talking Horror will be doing a very special episode revolving around Stephen King's novella, Cycle of a Werewolf, versus the 1980s film, Silver Bullet. I don't know about you, Jason, but I absolutely love Silver Bullet. It's one of my all-time favorite werewolf stories. Well, you know that werewolves are one of my favorite yes. monsters and so yeah i love silver bullet and actually just uh it took me a while to find it on dvd i finally just got a copy ah. um, and watched it uh, i think last halloween nice nice it's always it's definitely always in my rotation every october and the the, the book though even though it's only like 130 pages Different but similar. And that's why we have the Versus Machine, so that we can compare and contrast great things. It's coming soon from Two Guys Talking Horror and Versus Machine. Be on the lookout. Enough with the housekeeping. Let's dive in to the world of gothic horror. And you're absolutely right to, to say gothic horror. There's a lot of stuff from that era that, of course, you know, fits under that that umbrella. But this, in my opinion, I don't know how you guys feel, but in my opinion, this is the best mm. of them all. And gothic fiction and literature at that time is a pretty wide uh, definition, you know, right. of what constitutes gothic literature. But this one certainly hits the top of it. And well, this novel created pretty much the gothic. We are celebrating the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Origin of a Monster. 200 years is a very long time, and literature has definitely changed, but the classics are always a great place to go back to, to just experience a different way of life. And I, I look at some of the some of the greats like Shelley and Stoker and Larue. They they give you the sense of what it was like living in that time period. Even though these are our gothic horrors and they really don't, it's, you know, it's fantasy. They add enough reality, and I think this is one of the novel. This is definitely this definitely needs to be on the top ten list of any horror lovers novel list. So Jason, tell us a little bit about the actual novel. Well, and it's and it's interesting that you you talk about the the idea of going to the classics and and standing the test of time, and for people of today to look back at you know Shelley or Stoker's or Larue's and that, because in a sense that's kind of where this starts too, hmm. going much further back, obviously. But one of the things that a lot of 
current publications of the, the novel do not include on the cover anymore is the subtitle. And you have to look at the inside title page to find the subtitle of the book, which is The Modern Prometheus. Mm, yes, yeah. Which comes from Greek mythology. Greek mythology, right. Yeah. You go all the way back to Greek mythology. Yeah, it all goes all the way back to the, you know, the story of the the Titan Prometheus, who uh, most famously everyone talks about the fact that he gave man fire and was punished by Zeus for doing so mm. um, and and chained to a rock and I believe had his eyes pecked out, I think is what it was, something like that. Is that by, correct? By uh, ravens or crows or something who would come daily and and eat his eyes and then his eyes and then they would grow back and they would come again the, the next, next day, day yeah and do it all over again. right right that was his punishment for giving fire to man before that he is known as uh the titan who created man out of clay mm, and gave okay. and gave life to man so y- obviously you can see the the correlation and the the similarity there that that Shelley was pulling from but she was incredibly well read too, Shelley, and her she family. She came from a family of, of intellectuals. Right, mm. right. Literary giants, pretty much at that no. time. Yeah. And her mother was one of the leading feminists of her day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Early 1800s. And her father, I believe, taught literature. Or, uh, that sounds familiar. Mm. Yeah, that sounds familiar. So Mary, obviously, uh, had that gene. Yeah, yeah. She obviously, you know, had had it built into her from an early age to look at what had come before. Much like, I mean, you and I talk about about him being about John being the you know part of the first group of monster kids, right? Right. But you know, for both of us, anyone who is listening, if you haven't pieced it together, obviously John is my biological father and <laughs> has been a a pseudo father to Nick for almost 20 years yep, now. Yep, yep, yep. So yes, um, created them. <laughs> <laughs> so so very much in the same way that that we have learned from the generation before us right. in all of this stuff, Shelley too, you know, took from from her previous generation. Generation to generation respect what has come before you and then improve upon it. I don't know if our generation has improved on horror. Uh, There might be a handful of examples that I could rattle off if I had the time, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about Frankenstein. Right, right. And I think, too, it's important to note that when you are looking at a classic work of any art, whether it's uh, fine art or literature or performance in any way, film, stage, whatever the case may be, I think it's important to look at the time period that the piece originated from. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I think that that puts a lot of the quality of the piece in perspective. Whether it has stood the test or it's relevant today or not, I think it's important to see the the time frame that it came from. And, you know, the early 1800s, that's a big time of of change in the world. You know, you're talking about a, a time period that what, maybe 50 years or so prior tops is when Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. Electricity. Yeah, and, obviously, electricity. and obviously that's a heavy subject mm-hmm. here. So yeah, you know, looking at things like that, looking at the other art at that time to see how the piece that you're currently looking at 
differentiates and stands out, I think it's very important. And that time is a, is a crazy time of change, especially in literature. I think, you know, literature still somewhat in its infancy, not not fully, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, is it Count of Monte Cristo? Is that considered the first novel? Is that the one? Or is it Don Quixote? Oh, no. You'd be closer with Don Quixote. Don Quixote. Okay. I knew it was one of those two. I couldn't. even something before that. Okay. But uh, yeah, Don Quixote predates uh, uh, Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, And and there's something else that we kind of skipped over that that we should uh, consider, and that is that Mary did not start out in life as a Shelley. Ah. Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft, Godwin, the two names of her parents. Being, of course, influenced by both mother and father, she always, I think, wanted to write. But it wasn't until she after until after she met Percy that the uh, oh the writing bug mm. took hold, and as it's now famous, pretty much the legend, famous legend that uh, the story came out of a contest that she and Percy and Lord Byron and uh, uh, I'm forgetting the fourth person. And Mary, being, of course, always fascinated with the story of Prometheus, decided to use that as the jumping point for her story, which started out as a short story. And it was Percy who encouraged her to, and probably helped a little bit, in creating the whole book, the novel. The physician was John Polidori. Polidori, yes. Oh, it was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, that that famous now legendary story of them all in the in the home chateau. in in the chateau mm-hmm. and i believe it was in geneva mm-hmm. wasn't it yeah where the yeah. book takes place mm-hmm. where much of the okay. book takes place right. all those guys were treated like they were super celebrities yeah, at they, the time they, they were, were considered the rock stars yeah, of yeah. Their era percy and lord byron all of them and uh, they'd be the the subject of the supermarket tabloids of course if they were if they were supermarket tabloids yeah, right, back then right. yeah and of course, scandalous as well, because yep. Percy was married at the time, yep. and uh, was spending the uh, holiday with uh, Mary. Yep. And well. in the chateau, who was Mary was. 18, I think like I think sixteen when oh, they first. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that year she may have been like seventeen or eighteen. Right, but, when but they I think first they met, met. She was sixteen. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. Eventually, Percy's wife died in a drowning accident. A oh. drowning accident? Oh, that I did. Oh, wow. Sure that's what it huh. was, which is exactly what happened to Percy also, if I'm not mistaken. Oh. Not long. Uh, Mary and, and Percy weren't married that long. Yeah, I knew that. And, uh, I knew that it was... Before yeah. she became a widow. And uh, But at least she got to, she got to keep the name. That's, yes. that's <laughs> the important thing. Yes. And that was a name for sure at that yes. time. Although... At this point, her name has almost eclipsed his. As as big a name as he was and still is, mm-hmm. name probably more, because la- of this. La- la- name something that he wrote. Ooh, what, Percy? Yeah. No, uh, not you. I was going to say, he was, <laughs> we know you'd be able to. I somebody from our generation. <laughs> uh, I don't know I, if they study him anymore. I don't know. I, exactly. I remember we read, we read some Percy in high school and some Keats and Byron, but... Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know Byron, that I could give you any titles. But they never taught us anything about it, no, nothing from Percy. I didn't get anything from Percy. Hmm. Well, Percy and Lord Byron both were known for their poetry, probably mm, more than anything. more than anything else. 
Dr. Polidori, obviously, uh, could write as well because out of that same evening came the novel or story that he wrote about a vampire. Yeah. Which is kind of a... Uh, the vampire, vampire, I think it's yeah, called. Yeah, precursor to uh, Dracula. Yeah. So in one night, well, not one night, but in one <laughs> contest, yes. one weekend of of hanging out with rock stars, mm-hmm. not only do we get the modern Prometheus, but we get the vampire yes. as well. Yes. Yeah. Two monsters born on one night, and we're only celebrating the 200th birthday of one of them. Right. Yeah, that must have been a, a hell of a party that night. Um <laughs> All of those those folks and, and coming up with the story. So as the legend goes, they dared each other to come up with ghost stories that they could share while they were there. Apparently it was a very rainy summer, and so they, they were stuck inside quite a bit. If you read Mary's introduction to the book, rather than just skipping straight to the, the novel itself, like many people often do, but if you read her introduction, she says in there that... Basically, it was in the middle of the night, about probably around one or two in the morning, when she woke from a dream, essentially. And in the dream, and I quote, she says, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. In a sense, that's kind of where it starts, with that, mm-hmm. with that dream and that vision. That's where it all comes about. Now, there's claims from various different historians and literary experts that it is also loosely based on a somewhat true story. Mm-hmm. of an alchemist by the name of Johann Conrad Dippel. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his mm-hmm. name correctly, but in the uh, late 1600s and early 1700s, who I believe lived in that area or was was in a castle that they had passed while they were vacationing or something to that effect, and did experiments on cadavers and probably not reanimating things, and I think if it was animal cadavers probably at that. mostly animals. And who knows how much that actually influenced Mary. It it could have. She was, you know, in her late teens, young woman, Mm -hmm. vacationing with, you know, this big rock star. And they go through, and maybe they did pass this castle where this Conrad Dippel worked, and maybe that did leave an impression on her. Who knows? But um, in a sense, I suppose you could say that he's kind of too... Dr. Frankenstein, what Vlad the Impaler would be to, right. to Dracula. Right. Tom Stoker got some of his. Right. 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 Yeah. I'm just glad it's not Dippelstein. Dippelstein, <laughs> yeah. Frankenstein. Yeah, I, so Frankenstein rolls off the tongue a hell of a lot better than <laughs> Dippelstein. Yes. Ironically, something that I only just learned recently in preparing for, t- for this episode, there evidently is, or at least was, I don't know if it still stands. Uh, a real Frankenstein castle or Castle Frankenstein mm-hmm. in that area. Oh, I, I think it was a pretty common name. Like a Smith common yeah. or like, like Jones? Much, or Yeah, pretty much in, in, the, in that area, Austria. And uh, I think it was a pretty common name. So, yeah, there is. I've heard a Castle Frankenstein somewhere. I would love to go. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. 
Exploring Castle. It's not in Transylvania. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is interesting because it's, it's like you said, a pretty common name, like a Smith or a Jones or maybe something removed from that. But the name now has come to mean so much more. Oh, so, yeah. So that, of course, the monster is called Frankenstein. Yeah. As uh, opposed to the doctor. Well, that's that's one of the uh, the monster test questions from the monster squad. Who is Frankenstein? The guy or the monster? The, the man right. or that's the monster? Right. That's right. Uh, the man. Yes, yes, correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, most likely the fault of the Universal films. But we'll... We'll get to that in a bit. But getting back to the introduction that Mary wrote, just real quickly, uh, that was not in the original published editions oh. of the novel. The novel had become so popular that many people had asked where she got this inspiration mm. from, so that in a later edition, four or five years later, I want to Something say. Something like that, uh, yeah. It was published again with her introduction, which has now become almost as famous as the novel. <laughs> of gods and monsters. Now, this is definitely going to have to be a spoiler warning for anybody. We are now delving into the actual story in the novel. The novel itself, not so, any of the adaptations. Right. This is the original story, and we will try to keep it concise because obviously there's a lot of ground still to cover over 200 years, but we want to share the original story before we start talking about adaptations. Mm. So if you have not read the book, number one, shame on you. (laughs) Number two, beware, spoilers ahead. Or pause this, buy the book, read it tonight, and then come back and listen to the rest of it. Yeah, um, we'll wait. Yeah, we'll wait for you. We'll wait for you. (laughs) The book, a lot of people, I'm sure, are unaware actually starts with no characters connected to the family of Frankenstein at all. Mm. It actually starts with a ship captain in the Arctic by the name of Robert Walton, who um, in the first, gosh, I don't know how many pages it is, maybe 15, 20 pages of the, the introduction or the prologue, writes a series of letters to, I believe it's his sister, talking about his expedition to the Arctic. And I I have recently reread the novel, and I, I could be wrong unless I just missed it rereading it. I don't think he ever actually even says in the novel what he's going to the Arctic for or what they're searching in his letters to his sister. <clears throat> I don't recall that either. What does one do in the <laughs> Arctic back Explore. in the 1800s, you know? Well, you get lodged in the ice right. as yeah. <laughs> as Walton does mm. and, and you find you people find, just wandering on the ice yes near it, death near death <laughs> which of course is what happens with Walton and he finds Victor Frankenstein who is near death he doesn't know it's Victor he brings him on the ship and helps him and nurses him back to health mm. and he kind of keeps himself very aloof from everyone but i i think it's also important to note that at this point in time in the book when he finds Victor, I believe in the letter previous to that, he explains that they just saw some large figure go up over a crest, mm. and they don't know what it is. So right away in the first 10 pages or so, Shelley has introduced us to the creature without us even knowing it, right. if you've never read it. 
Victor eventually comes around and becomes friendly with Walton. From there commences to tell his story. The, the interesting thing that the book does at this point is it changes narrative. Mm. It changes from Walton telling a story to then the story being told from Victor's point of view, which is something that the book then does later on, once again, when it changes narrative again as the creature tells his story from his point of view and then changes back to Victor. And we'll get to all that in a bit, but that's a very interesting device. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a pretty popular style of that time. At that era? Gothic literature particularly, all the way up through Dracula, if you remember from the novel Dracula. Right, right. It is told from many different points of right. view. Through letters, all the letters and correspondence from all of the characters mm-hmm. in, in, the, uh, in the story, yeah. Right, right. Which is very, I mean, it's very fascinating mm-hmm. to, to read it that way. It kind of keeps it uh, fresh for me. I don't know how other people feel, but... Well, you don't see a lot of, especially even today, I mean, hell, you work in a bookstore. Right. You don't see a lot of novels that have multiple viewpoints. No, no, especially not today. That's not a thing that a publisher would go for today. People are going to get confused with all this. Straightforward storytelling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At this point, Victor's narrative takes over, and he explains, you get this long backstory of the family and and particularly of Elizabeth mm. and how Elizabeth, a lot of adaptations will refer to her just as his cousin. And it's a little bit more than just that. I believe that she was adopted in the novel by the Frankenstein family and actually grows up there oh, okay. with Victor. They are actually childhood sweethearts in a, right. in a sense. So just uh, because, But because of the adoption, she's called a cousin, but there's no... Well, yeah, but back then, anyway, with, with high-to-do families, I don't think that really mattered if you were related or not either. <laughs> mm-hmm. Certainly not on a cousin level, yeah. Right. I think people would marry their cousins all the time yeah. then. So it's not creepy at all, folks, <laughs> no. that Victor marries his cousin mm-hmm. because it's cousin out of adoption. So we, we get to know the backstory and the, the connection between Victor and Elizabeth. And, and also, Victor goes into a little detail of where his interest in science comes from. Mm. And the tipping point for him, I believe anyway, as a character, I don't know what you guys think, is when his mother dies. I think mm-hmm. that's the moment that he yeah, well, yeah. that creates right. Dr. Frankenstein. It's the first time he faces death. Right, right. Yeah. And as a learned man who believes that science can solve anything, mm-hmm. well, this needs to be solved too. Right. I don't want anybody else to feel the pain that I'm feeling right now at the loss of my mother. If I can conquer death, then nobody does have to feel that way. Exactly. He then studies and then leaves and goes off to school. So the other thing that a lot of people, I think, get <laughs> confused probably from the movies is that he doesn't have some giant crazy lab in the, the top of a castle <laughs> no. or something. No. He's a student. He's away at, at mm-hmm. and I believe the lab, if I if I remember correctly, having read it, I believe his lab is in his apartment. Yes, that yes. he it's that he's in staying in quarters. in his living quarters. Mm, yeah, right. Right. which is. A little so more messed no up. Tower no tower, no crickety old stone steps. No. No electrical equipment. In fact, the whole, well, I'm probably jumping ahead, but the whole creation scene. Now, I was just going to get into that next. Yes. Hinted at. Yeah. Because you're talking about a time when science wasn't exactly, well, it wasn't science like it is today. Right. right. Yeah. It was much more alchemy. Yeah. You know, the yeah. The study of, of uh, 
supernatural elements combined with some scientific right. theory behind it, you know, turning lead to gold kind mm, of ideas. Yep. Mary doesn't waste a whole lot of time scientifically researching any elements right. of the novel. Dive right in, <laughs> create the body, put it together, bring it to life. In fact, the creation sequence in the novel, it's only two sentences. Mm -hmm. It's only about a paragraph long at most. Mm -hmm. This is the creation sequence from the book. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glider of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. And that's it. That's it, folks. There's no talk of water tanks. There's no talk of giant <laughs> orbs with the, you the know. third switch. <laughs> right. Not yeah. the third switch. <laughs> Do yes. it. No Kenneth Strickfadden. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Laboratory right. with sparks of electricity and arcs of electricity yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Which is, you know, Mary doesn't waste time with any of that. So that way the reader can imagine it any way they want. It's, it's yeah. A, it's a, uh, an element of horror that tends to be overlooked more mm. and more. Yes, quite often. The less you show, the less you explain, sometimes is more horrifying even the description of the creature in the book is extremely is vague. vague it's very so that you very yourself you the reader create created in your mind mm -hmm. and every makeup artist in the world has been doing so since uh -huh. yes yes uh -huh. in fact i believe the only thing that she really states about the description is the long hair mm -hmm. she does mention that uh the creature does have long hair and watery eyes that seemed almost the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set. Yeah. And that's about it. Uh, black lips, I think she mentions, if I remember the right. Yellow skin, the yeah, the yellow skin, through. right. Mm. Oh, that's, yes, I did forget yeah. about the yellow. But you're yeah, describing yeah. a cadaver. Yeah. yeah, essentially. Who has been dead for some time. Yeah. Other than that, the, the reader or the audience can imagine the most horrifying thing they've ever seen, which makes it a challenge for adaptation. Yeah. Yes, it does. When, when, yeah. you're, when you're moving it to a different media from the novel. Especially at this point, especially 200 years later, when, yeah. when there have been so many different right. Right. looks. Can you possibly create a new look for Frankenstein's monster? I don't know. I don't think so. Once the creature has been created and it comes to life, it seems in that moment that Victor is suddenly horrified at what he has done. And... I have read that people have complained quite a bit about this moment because it does, to some, seem to come out of nowhere. It mm. seems like he just, it's all about figuring out these answers, and then he does it, and it's immediate, I don't know about necessarily remorse, but uh, certainly a level of regret as, as to what he has done. And he runs. He immediately runs. Mm -hmm. And there's this creature that has just come to life and has nothing and he has just abandoned it yeah completely mm -hmm. which um one can argue about whether it's 
it's a stretch that he would flip that quickly or not, but you can't argue that that's, regardless of the creation, that's probably the first real horrific thing that Victor does, I think. Well, you also also look at the time period, even though he is a man of medicine, religion is huge back then. So you've got the man and the scientist. Well, the scientist has just proven that he can conquer death. And then the man, attached to the religion that he was brought up in, realizes, oh shit, I just conquered death, and look what I've created. It's not beautiful. This is hideous. And right. I think there's a there's a snap, because from this moment on, Victor does some really horrible things mm-hmm. to not only the creature, but the people around him involving the creature's actions. Mm-hmm making him just as much of the villain as the creature. I mean, that's something that that you can actually go back and forth with. Who exactly is the monster? Is it Victor or is it the creature? Upon abandoning the creature, Victor then takes terribly ill. And he is found and nursed back to health by his friend Henry Clerval, uh, an old childhood friend who I believe was not quite as educated as Victor. I believe that he was kind of on the outside, if I remember correctly. More of, a, more of the artistic mind. I believe so, yeah. He was a poet, I believe, wasn't he? Just oh, that could be. I, I, if I, I may have missed that I always in the rereading. That Corvell is based on Lord Byron. Mm. Oh. Victor on Percy. On more Percy, Elizabeth yeah, of course. Yeah. On Mary. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at least personality-wise. Sure, sure. Which would make sense if totally you're going to yeah. write your first novel at that age and you're doing it. I mean, of course, you're going to base it on things that you know, right? Mm-hmm. That's where it comes from. There's even a Dr. Polidori type character in the novel. Yes, that's right. Professor Waldman. That's right. Yeah. When Victor runs, of course, the creature <laughs> obviously freaked out at just being given life and the one who gave it to him just abandoned him. The creature also runs. And then we don't see the creature again for. Gosh, six, seven chapters, I think. I mean, he mm. kind of vanishes from the book, and we follow we follow Victor as he nurses back to health and eventually moves back home and, and starts to reconnect. However, as he's prepping to move home, I believe a snowstorm hits or something, and, and he has to stay at school. Something like that. So the weather, if I remember right, the weather gets bad, and he can't travel. He mm. can't go home. He's constantly receiving letters from Elizabeth and his father, who are trying to get him to come home sooner rather than later. As he's about to respond, he gets a letter from his father that states his younger brother, William, has been killed. And that prompts Victor to rush home Mm. and get there. The ironic thing at this point is that when Victor gets back and he starts to talk with Elizabeth and find out what happened... The book does not switch narratives, but it does almost backtrack a little bit as people fill him in on the events that were happening there mm. while he was at school. Okay. So we do kind of go do this back and forth flashback kind of thing throughout the book, as well as switching narratives. And that's when you get to learn about Justine, the nanny, William's nanny. And you also you also meet the rest of Victor's family, the his father and, of course, his other brother, I can't remember. Uh, William's the youngest, and then oh, who was uh, the other? Ernst. 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 That's right. Ernst Frankenstein. Ernst mm-hmm. Frankenstein. He's the middle child, I believe, mm-hmm. isn't he? Yes. 
16 well, of course or something. he's the middle child. With, he's named with a name Ernst. like Ernst. Ernst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the importance of being Ernst. Yeah. The, yeah. the importance of being Ernst Frankenstein. <laughs> but the, the biggest thing to take away from that whole sequence is the meeting of Justine and how she is brought into the family as a nanny for young William. It's very wonderfully described by Elizabeth, her whole backstory and what brings her to the family. And I'll let readers get into that and and learn all of that. The the biggest thing to take away is that she joins the family as the nanny. And by the time Victor has come back, it is pretty much decided that by the villagers and by the town that Justine is the primary suspect Mm -hmm. in William's murder. By this point, Victor is piecing information together, and Victor has pretty much determined that it was not Justine. He basically knows that his creature has done this. We don't know why, but he knows. And this is where I think one of the absolute worst things that any character in gothic horror literature has ever done occurs, and that is when Justine goes to trial she eventually admits that she kills William because nobody believes her otherwise. Mm. And she says it, and they set to execute her. And Elizabeth, of course, is heartbroken, and Victor keeps saying, I'm almost positive it's not her, but he won't tell anyone why. Mm -hmm. He never says why, because if he does, he has to come clean about what he has done. They go to see Justine, and Justine even says, you know, well, I just admitted it, because there wasn't really any other option. Mm-hmm. I had to do that. And Victor still doesn't do anything. And they they execute her. Mm-hmm. And I forget how. I forget if they hang her or if it's a beheading or what. I, I forget now I how. It's a hanging. It's a hanging. Mm. I'm almost certain. But at any moment, at any time, he could have stopped it. Yeah. And he doesn't. Which... Like I said, he's... Asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think when I was younger... And the first time I learned about that moment, I think that was the moment that really drew me to the story, to the book. Because that's, I mean, that's an absolutely horrible, self-centered, awful thing to do. But it is the nature of man. You do not want to get caught. Yeah. He could have have saved her life by putting his life in jeopardy because he would have had to explain, so, okay, I created a man and it's... Going around I killing God. people. I, I played God. Sorry. Let's see what we can do to fix this. No, they're gonna they're gonna burn him. They're gonna put him in the guillotine. Mm-hmm. They're gonna they're gonna hang him. They're gonna do something. And he's not, he doesn't want to die. <laughs> better this better this girl takes my place so that I I who have importance who have purpose can do something about this. Right. Not not can, I'm 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 not saying that he was right. <laughs> I'm just. Yeah. Ex- Sounds like something Stephen King may have written. Yeah, oh, well. yeah. Good yeah. point. Yeah, very good point. Well, you got to appreciate the duality that Shelley puts into, specifically, Victor. Yes. Because you have to have a character like that. Mm-hmm. If he was just driven on one thing, he wouldn't have freaked out when he saw his monster. Mm-hmm. Right. So having the duality and turning him into not, not, not a good guy, not a bad guy, but a person... It really helps where the story is concerned. Mm-hmm. Almost, almost his, if you will, Shakespearean flaw. Mm. Almost. Yeah, there you go. In yeah. a sense. Yeah. yeah. Or, or the Greek tragedy. Or the well, yeah, 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 yeah. Hero with yeah, the flaw right. who brings about his own destruction. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
After the death of Justine, Victor does eventually come into contact with the creature Mm. once again. (laughs) Unlike a lot of people portray in movies, at this point in time, the creature is somewhat intelligent. He talks. He has read. And that's when we switch narrative again. Mm -hmm. We switch over as the creature then tells Victor what he has been up to. And I believe at this point it's been like two years since the creation or something like that. Mm. Time has passed. It's like a story within a story now. Yeah, yeah. And so the whole book switches and now the creature is the narrator as you're reading. And I, I forget how many chapters that goes on for about four or five chapters, I think where the creature is telling his story. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get the whole story of him hiding in caves and scrounging to find berries and picking up words from various different travelers that pass by and finding books. I I forget all of the books that he finds in the woods, but one of them, which I think is very important, Mm -hmm. is Paradise Lost. Right. And and very telling about what people were reading at that time, right. too. If Mary Shelley's mm-hmm. going to use that book, obviously Milton's story of ultimate good mm-hmm. versus ultimate evil. Right, well, yeah. Um, and Angels and Demons and that obviously was picked as a book for a reason for the creature to find. And it's there where we discover the now famous blind hermit character, who in the book is not... Not just a, a lonely old man. <laughs> he uh, he actually has a family. Yes, he's not a hermit. <laughs> yeah, right, ah. right. And in fact, I, if I remember right, he I think he's an aristocrat that lost everything, isn't he? Or the family is, and they've lost their right. money years prior, and right. and now they're living in this cabin and kind of ostracized from their community, which is funny because so is the creature. Mm. Again, that whole outcast a feeling. sequel to A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> yeah, sort of, yeah. Yeah. Although written before, before A Tale of Two Cities, so a prequel, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a sense. I'm going to tell you A Tale of One City. Yes. Yeah. And it's and of course, you know, it's there that he, he befriends the, the blind man. And there is the whole violin and all the, the music that you see in all the movies. That, of course, plays in and... And the creature loves the music, and he begins to talk, and he befriends the man. Well, the the man's children, I believe it is, come mm-hmm. home and believe that the creature is attacking, and they attack him, which is kind of what sets the creature on the path of, well, that's it. No one is going to trust me. No one is going to give me any hope or love or help, so I will lash out, mm-hmm. and I will start by lashing out at the person that brought this on. Right. I'm going to be treated as a monster. I will behave. I will be one. Yep, exactly. You want a monster? I'll give you a monster. So he goes after and he kills kills William. It's around that point that he eventually tells Victor, I'll leave you alone. I'll give you one last chance and I will go away. Do this again. Create another one. Create a mate for me. Mm. Yeah. Reluctantly, of course, Victor agrees, and he does it, and he creates what we know now as the bride in movies. But again, once again, upon completing the creation of the bride, he's horrified by what he does and destroys the bride. A little bit of a Hamlet complex. A little bit, yeah, (laughs) a little bit. And that, of course, sets the creature (laughs) ablaze, and I believe then even says, I will come for you, I will take everything. And I think he says, I will be there 
on your wedding night. Almost in those exact words, if I remember. I will be there on your wedding night. Which he does. He shows up that night. And Victor, if I remember right in the scene in the novel, he comes running into Elizabeth's room, who is just screamed, I think. Mm -hmm. And he opens the door, and her body is laying there, strangled. And the creature is in the window, pointing at her and like mocking Victor. Mm -hmm. Now both sides, both parties have gone to the extreme. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that bothers me in adaptations, especially today when they try to portray the doctor as the the worst of the two. They often make the creature sympathetic and say that, oh, well, no, the doctor is the real monster. They're both the real monster. Mm -hmm. They are both just as horrible. The creature has moments and has a, opportunities to choose to go another way and doesn't Mm. granted it's out of revenge and i'm not sure that many other people in the world wouldn't do the same thing that still doesn't make it right (laughs) and uh certainly makes him just as monstrous as as victor so Mm -hmm. they end up hunting one another for months i believe or years almost something like that it goes on forever it's a novel yeah yeah (laughs) it goes on forever until eventually Victor is found by Robert Walton, and we're back to the beginning. And of course, we've we've well during the hunt the we switch back to Victor's narrative as he continues to tell, and then now at the end we switch back to the letters. Right, but just think about where they are during this story in the European countryside. Yay, everything's fine. To end up in the Arctic, cold, isolated. He's they've chased each other to the the most remote area of the world to the end of the world they chased each other to, to the, the end, end of, the, of world. the world yeah mm-hmm. and victor retires and there's a commotion and when walton comes to his cabin to check on him he's dead victor has died and i don't believe the creature does it i think he dies no. because of the the Fever or whatever it no. is that he has. He was dying from the very beginning. Right. He appeared oh, on the yeah yeah, but the creature is there with Victor. He is standing over the body, mm-hmm. and he takes the body, and he jumps out the window, and leaves and runs off. But before he does, he explains to Walton that at this point he has accomplished everything. He has nothing left, and he's going to go commit suicide. He's going to take Victor, and he's going to go commit suicide. And even talking about putting himself on a pier, like lighting himself on fire, Mm -hmm. which is really messed up (laughs) to to consciously do that to yourself. And he says, I shall die, and what I now feel be no longer felt. Soon these burning miseries will be extinct. I shall ascend my funeral pile triumphantly, and exult in the agony of the torturing flames. The light of that conflagration will fade away. My ashes will be swept into the sea by the winds. My spirit will sleep in peace, or if it thinks, it will not surely think thus. Farewell. And he jumps. He jumps out the window. And Walton watches them go away and go kind of off into a pseudo-weird messed up sunset if you will the book ends with walton saying he sprang from the cabin window as he said this upon the ice raft which lay close to the vessel 
he was soon borne away by the waves and lost in darkness and distance. Mm -hmm. And the book ends. Mm -hmm. and, and we are led to then believe that the creature follows through with his plans and commits suicide. Cheery still, book, very cheery. On that piece or of ice yeah, yeah, because he might be immortal. Because he right, because he might be unkillable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I do believe has been explored in a handful of different adaptations. Yeah, right. yeah. But yeah, yeah. Not a cheery mm -hmm. story. No, no, no. at no. all. In your brief summation of the novel, there is one other murder that should be mentioned, and that is Henry Clerval. Yeah. The uh, the demon, as he's referred to in the book a lot of times, the creature, the demon, uh, also murders Henry. Yeah, that's right. And Victor is picked up by the police and brought in and and is shown his body. Mm. Uh, and the coffin is opened and there is Henry covered in blood. Yeah. I don't know how. Mm. Yeah, they never explain <clears throat> what he does yeah. to him. Yeah, it does explain that he strangles Elizabeth, mm -hmm. and I believe it explains that he... Some, I think the words were something like rings the life from William or something like that. Right, I, right. I don't think it goes into detail of how he strangles or if he breaks mm -hmm. something. But yeah, Henry, there's never any yeah. detail right. about what happens. Blood that he has covered yeah, that's yeah. I do I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, he did say he would take everything away. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now that we've gone through briefly the story of the novel, we want to know what are your favorite memories of reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Reach out to us over at our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com, fill out the contact form, and tell us your memories of reading Frankenstein. Adapting a classic. We've talked about the novel, but I bet most of you know Frankenstein through either film or television adaptations. And that's okay. We don't blame you. But I bet you don't know all the adaptations of Frankenstein that are out there. And of course, we're not going to talk about all of them. No, we don't have time. <laughs> this would be a seven-hour podcast yeah. in several different parts. But we are going to touch upon some of the well-known ones and some of the obscure ones, and we're definitely going to give you some advice on a few of these adaptations that you definitely need to check out. I think it's important to note that adaptations for Frankenstein started as early as 1823 mm -hmm. with the first play adaptation by uh, Richard Brinsley. Am I saying that right? Richard Brinsley... Mm -hmm. Peak, I believe, mm -hmm. and it's not even called Frankenstein. No, no. it's the called names were changed. Yeah, to protect the yeah yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what presumption? I think it's called the 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 play, something to that effect. Something I think. Like that. Yeah. Also, interestingly, it is the only adaptation that Mary Shelley herself saw. Mm -hmm. I would wonder very much what she thought of it. I, I know that people have said that she enjoyed it regardless of the liberties that it took with the story right. Right. she she seemed to enjoy it but uh, i wonder what she really thought i wonder if she went home and was like ah they butchered my book you know? <laughs> pretty much what any novelist of today says yeah right right, right. Into a film. right 
And there, you know, there were other subsequent stage productions over the years. There was uh, a play called The Man and the Monster in 1826. And and I find this an interesting one. The title of this play had a subtitle. The, the title was Frankenstein. The subtitle was not the modern Prometheus. It was The Vampire's Victim. What? But, Which, okay. yeah, I don't know any much about. I, I found it in doing some research recently, and evidently it was a burlesque somewhere around 1887. I'm not sure what the vampire's victim has to do with Frankenstein, and who knows if it was a burlesque, if it even pertained to anything. But, uh, yeah, so there there were certainly some strange ones. My name is Carl Frankenstein. Yeah. It had nothing to do with the book. Yes. They were already spoofing them back then. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right off the bat. But I think the the most famous to start everything off really was the 1910 silent film produced ironically by Thomas Edison. Mm, yeah. Starring Charles Ogle. Ogle, is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. it? Ogle as the creature. And in that one it, it was basically all magic. There was no science it was alchemy. whatsoever. It was yeah, yeah it, it was the, the monster pops out of a cauldron. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it was basically, yeah. But it's a very cool effect for 1910. Mm, I mean, the, yeah. the way that they pulled it off and obviously it's rewound footage, but well, it's not really the novel. I mean, no. Total rewound. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a 15 minute. Yeah, yeah, it's not version even of the same story. Yeah. yeah. But it is it is worth watching if you can find it. I believe there's mm-hmm. a an HD upload on YouTube that you can find and so. watch it. Yeah. Um, there was a DVD released a, a number of years ago on a small print run. I'm not sure if that's still available, but you can at least find it on YouTube and check that out. It's literally yeah. only about 15 minutes. We'll definitely have a link in the show notes for this episode for anybody interested so that you can check it out. But let's be honest, the first real adaptation that anyone talks about, the first one that made any kind of waves was in 1931. Mm-hmm. Universal's Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Based on a play. Oh, really? Now that I didn't know. Yes. Like by, like the uh, Dracula one was yes. based on... Oh, yeah. okay. By uh, Peggy Webling. Hmm. Oh, I interesting. Is, is the playwright. And I might have been in collaboration with someone else, but that name sticks in my mind for some reason. Peggy Webling. It was a play... Now, the movie, I think, follows that play probably closer than it follows the novel. Well, right. it doesn't yeah. follow the novel very closely no, yeah. at all, no. as much as I love it. Yeah. In the play, have you read it? Do you know no. if the characters' names were changed the way they are in the movie? For for anyone who has not seen the Karloff version... Shame on you. They mm-hmm. Yeah, shame on you. <laughs> but they switched... Henry Clerval and Victor Frankenstein's names, probably because they thought Victor was not a good name for a, a protagonist. Villain. It's more of a villain name, yeah. yeah. So in the films, his name is Henry Frankenstein, and mm-hmm. his friend is Victor Clerval. Mm-hmm. Was it that way in the play, do you know? I don't know. Okay. I, mm. I kind of doubt it. That sounds more like a Hollywood Yeah, it does. Yeah. to me. Yeah. Because in the original film, Frankenstein, with Colin Clive... Mm-hmm. As Henry as, as, yeah. Frankenstein, he was supposed to die at the end. Oh, he was. Yes, he he uh, was supposed to die at the windmill. Oh, but then Universal said, "No, no, no, we can't have a, a, a downer ending like that." So they tacked on very quickly an added scene that uh, he was still alive, and they brought him back. 
So is that that scene at the end with uh, spoiler? <laughs> is that the scene at the end when the maids all come in with yes. the drinks and the yes, Baron and the is Baron toast yeah. to the son okay. of the House of Frankenstein? The scene that feels <laughs> out of place with the rest right. of the film. Exactly. Okay, it had I didn't know that. To have that release huh. at the end because the film terrified audiences. Yeah, people I knew that. Were taking taken out in ambulances at some. Screens. I heard people were passing out mm. and vomiting yes. and. At the yes. sight of... So they decided to give it a more uplifting ending by saving Henry at the hmm. end. And obviously set it up for a sequel. Sure. <laughs> sure. And a subsequent series. Mm-hmm. I personally just finished re-watching the entire Universal Frankenstein series. I didn't watch the Draculas and the Wolfmans and all the other ones that tie in. Mm-hmm. But any film that had the monster appear in it, yeah. I watched. And I just yeah. went through it. If... No one has ever done that. You should take the time. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just the Frankensteins, if you just do those, what is it, eight, I think? Mm-hmm. It's so much fun and so enjoyable and worth your time. Get through all of them. Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost, Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Then the two houses. Then the yeah. two houses. House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello. Yeah, and House of Dracula is the only one without the name Frankenstein in the title. Right, right. Also important to note about that series, the first real shared universe. Everybody keeps talking about shared universes in films today because mm-hmm. of Marvel. Yeah. Marvel's and every, done it. Marvel's created a shared universe. Uh, no, uh, no, no. That started back in the 30s. Yeah. Universal <laughs> um, I guess if you want to be technical, I guess it doesn't really start until Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. That's really where the sharedness starts. But mm-hmm. but technically, it starts in the 30s with, with the Universal movies. Mm-hmm. And, and they're great. They're loose continuity. Don't expect a, mm-hmm. you know, a tightness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't try fun. to figure it out chronologically because yeah. the times that they mention in between films don't add up correctly. Right. Correct. Right. If right. they did, House of Dracula would take place in the late 1950s, I believe. I believe so. And there's also discrepancies between movies in the sense that, again, House of Dracula, uh, because it's the freshest in my mind, Dracula's up and running around in the very first scene, and there's no explanation no. as to how he survived House of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and he, why he, he disintegrated. He disintegrated in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun to revisit the Universal monsters. We'll definitely actually going to be having an upcoming episode of Two yes. Guys Talking Horror where we talk about the Universal monsters and their impact of not only society back then but the possibility of their impact on society for today Mm -hmm. so be on the lookout for that episode horror fans i think the next major adaptation that i can think of is when hammer films came around in what was that 57 with curse curse of frankenstein Frankenstein. well between the 30s and into the 50s you know gothic horror had kind of gone bye-bye yeah it was the atomic age science fiction so yeah. in, the, in the united states it was Outer more space. giant monsters that were created <clears throat> by radioactivity and things yeah. like that he's from twenty thousand fathoms the old monsters and, yeah. weren't really all that fresh anymore mm-hmm. in theaters they were on television now television that's was true a thing, yeah you're right and universal sold and their monster movies and it brought them back and that's why hammer and films. hammer hey yeah money here there is definitely money let's resurrect mm-hmm. the old monsters but because of legal the old legalese you can't really do what universal did so of mm-hmm. course we're not well fine we won't do that because right. guess what 
your your movie was a little boring. <laughs> We're going to hammerize it. Mm-hmm. And and oh boy, did they! Yes, I've oh, I've yeah. only seen <clears throat> I've only seen the first two Hammer Frankenstein films. But well, shame on you! I know, shame, <laughs> shame on me! I, I will be watching more to prepare for our upcoming Hammer Horror mm-hmm. episode, so that's also on the horizon. Mm-hmm. But I've done a lot of I've done a lot of research in, in preparation, and I tell you what, they take they take the story and they just spin it around into something completely different, mm-hmm. which is a good thing because mm-hmm. the Universal stuff focus on. The monster, really. Right. It was like every movie, it was like, this is what the monster is doing now. And only for those first four or five films was there an actual Frankenstein, a member of the family, involved in anything. Mm-hmm. In the later ones, it was just the monster roaming around doing stuff with other mm-hmm. monsters. Yeah. Right? And in Hammer, Hammer takes the story and they make no apologies on the character of Baron Frankenstein. He's a bad guy. Yeah. He's he's a jerk. He he wants this is what I'm going to do and anybody who gets in my way, well you might actually end up as part of my creature. Played beautifully by Peter Cushing. Who, yes. And he made a name as a horror master. He's one of the horror kings. When I yes. think of the horror kings, which we'll get to in a little bit. He is certainly one of them, but yeah, his his doctor is portrayed very different Actually, from. He's called the Baron. He's the, that's right. He's Baron, called the Baron. Yeah. He's not even yeah. He's not even Baron referred to as the Doctor. That's right. Six, six, six of them, seven, seven of them. All the other the other six or seven, whatever it is now, do link up. They do, yeah. Yeah, mm. uh, in a way, I mean, each one is a film on its own, right? But there are connections. The Baron is the returning character. Mm. He is the immortal who cannot die. Right. <laughs> and comes back and back and back. Yeah. And it's a different creature then each time as each a result. Every movie different, different creature, yeah. yeah. Which which again, fresh mm-hmm. for that time. Never saw anything like that. You actually are now you now have a whole stable of Frankenstein monsters mm-hmm. and all of them are unique. Right. From every single film. And it's interesting. Curse of Frankenstein, the first in 1957, was just one of about 10 movies Hammer was making that year. Mm. It was just part of their list. Well, we'll redo Frankenstein. No thought that it would go anywhere. Right. Just put it in the list with several. They made war films. They made comedies. They made a lot of film noir, science fiction movies. And let's, we, we got these rights to Frankenstein. Let's do this right now. Yeah. And threw that in there. It became such a success. That, of course, Hammer followed it with Horror of Dracula, or in England, just Dracula. Right. Was it called Curse of Frankenstein from the very yes. beginning? Even in the always, UK, it was yes. always Curse of Frankenstein. Okay. Curse of Inter- Frankenstein. Okay. But Horror of Dracula in the UK was just Dracula. Dracula. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, became Horror of Dracula here, so as not to confuse it, I guess, <laughs> with the Lugosi <laughs> one. Because this one's in color, and this nothing, one's in black yeah. and white. <laughs> so, I mean, Curse of Frankenstein was such a huge hit. Then Hammer said... Well, let's get them all. Yeah, we'll, we'll let's do them mummy, all. We'll have a Dracula. We'll have a werewolf. We'll make up some new ones. Yeah. What they never did, and probably thankfully, is have them meet. Mm. Yeah. It yeah, was there was no, no shared universe. They never combined the monsters in anything. 
Yeah, I think we as monster kids prayed for it. I bet you did. Yeah, I bet. Begged for it. Well, I mean, somebody you you could actually look at at Curse or uh, Horror of Dracula and go like, hmm, I wonder if Doctor Van Helsing is related to Baron Frankenstein (laughs) because they're because they're both played by Peter Cushing. (laughs) Totally opposite, good and evil. Yes. I think all three of us would suggest everybody check out at least a few, at least a handful of the Hammer Frankenstein films. At, at the very least, watch fan. the first the first of all the series. Through. Yeah, and then come back here and catch our in-depth history and discussion on Hammer films. Because by then I will have watched everything and I'll be learned <laughs> just like everybody else. Please bring me back for that one. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Because I, I grew up as a monster kid. I exactly. grew up waiting for the next Hammer film to come out. Just so you know, you're coming back for the Universal Monster okay. episode and the Hammer Monster okay. episode. So Yeah, I grew up watching the be Universals prepared. on TV mm. in the 50s because that was a little before my time right, in the right. theaters. But the Hammer films were the ones that we waited for. Mm. And when a previews came on TV of a double feature, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Plague of the Zombies together on the same screen. <laughs> and that's your day right there. That was it. You, you were set. <laughs> yeah. You jumped on the bus. You went downtown to the huge movie palace, and you watched both of them with previews, cartoons, yeah. and everything. If movies go, if movie going yeah. was like that today. Yeah. <laughs> Or you went to the drive-in and saw three of them. There you go. <laughs> and that's probably where you saw some of the other Frankenstein films yes, of the time. Things a, like yeah. I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. Yes. And, uh, yeah, the classic the, American 50s yeah, Frankenstein right. films went the, as you were talking, the atomic age. Yeah. Influence. I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Right. Frankenstein meets the space monster. And Jesse James um, yeah. meets Jesse Frankenstein James was meets in that Frankenstein's time. Daughter. Or Frankenstein's daughter. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, uh, there was even, I remember the story behind Godzilla versus King Kong started out as a script for Godzilla versus Frankenstein. Because Toho had their series Toho of had Frankenstein. Their, yes. And Frankenstein was a giant creature. Of course, he was a kaiju kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Well, I can go back to the 30s. Ooh. After King Kong was a phenomenal success in yeah. 1933, Willis O'Brien, the special effects genius behind King Kong's mm-hmm. next project was going to be Frankenstein meets King Kong. Oh, really? Wow. And there were drawings. I've seen the drawings. And the Frankenstein creature that was created was a giant creature the size of King Kong. And it was going to be a battle between the two of them. Wow. Either called Frankenstein meets King Kong or King Kong meets Frankenstein. I forget who got top billing. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> Probably King Kong now that I think of it, but I'm not sure. But I have seen drawings. Wow, Monster okay. looked more along the lines of one of David Prowse's versions in the Hammer films. Mm, okay. Well, and then right. we had to wait till 1965 then to get Franken- what is it? Frankenstein Conquers the World, I think, is yeah, the that, first that giant the yeah. title. Yeah. The giant Frankenstein yeah. movie in, that we in Japan, could have gotten. It was Frankenstein wow. oh, meets Baragon or Frankenstein versus the giant lizard or something like that. <laughs> right. It was called in, in, in Japan. Uh, me personally, I prefer when we can we get down to the morality play of should mm-hmm. man play yeah. God right. and how far should man mm-hmm. take science yes. to pursue knowledge or glory or whatever i i like the i like the original versions a a lot better of course at that same time then too 
television was doing versions of, of Frankenstein mm-hmm. as well. Um, I know that uh, I just watched, what was it, from a television series? That, Tales of Tomorrow. Tales of Tomorrow, mm-hmm. yeah. It was An a, early science fiction anthology yeah, show. Yeah, predates mm. Twilight. Yeah, you you lent oh, me wow, it, so okay. you you yeah, explain it. It, it was it was Twilight wild to watch. Half hour shows, and actually some of them are very good, and and very clever. And they would use um, Hollywood stars whose stars had dimmed a little no, at that time, well. uh, who were doing TV. People like Thomas Mitchell, and of course Lon Chaney Jr. Mm. And this was all pre Outer Limits and pre Twilight yes, Zone, and it was pre One Step Beyond. Yeah. all of them. Tales of Tomorrow, I believe, was even probably shot on the old kinetoscope uh, uh, oh. uh, videotape, the large videotape. Oh, okay. wow, uh, wow. So I, I think a lot of them probably don't exist mm. anymore. But there are some that are saved. One is the infamous Frankenstein episode yeah. with Lon Chaney Jr. Boy, which, if you uh, can find a copy of this, watch it. It is something to watch. It's a pretty amazing piece, isn't Ooh. it? Yes. I mean, it tells the story of the doctor creating the monster. It, yeah. Sort of. It's, it's a, yeah, adaptation. Yeah. In a half hour <laughs> reader's digest version. Adaptation-wise, it's fine. You don't want to watch it for the adaptation. No. You want to watch it for its for, for its infamy for Lon Chaney's performance. Yeah, that's a thereof. that's a one way to call <laughs> it. Yeah. Uh, he, who, well, this was, was towards the end of his career. Was, well, yeah, it was in the early fifties. I mean, he went on for another ten years. Oh, but wow. by this time, he was pretty well known as being somewhat the, of the. Uh, he was a drunkard. Yes. The alcoholic. Depending on how the, much he had in him was yes. depending on how well he was yes. going to perform for you. Right. Yeah. And not that he was a mean drunk. They said usually he was a lot of fun to be with. Right. So when they videotaped the half-hour version of this story live, <laughs> um, <laughs> they told him it was just a dress rehearsal. <laughs> and uh, so thinking it was just a dress rehearsal, he went through the paces without actually going full out in other words when he had to break something he would pick up a chair to toss it and then set it back down (laughs) and then (laughs) pantomime the motion of breaking it afterwards and it's (laughs) i'm conscious of property damage (laughs) (laughs) yes yes and he himself had no idea this was going live across the air oh wow yeah he thought it was just being taped and was going to be it was a rehearsal and that they would tape it live after Mm. that so there are many, inst- and I think there's even a stuck door at one time uh, or something of that sort that he mm. can't get through and he winds up walking around the set. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. And he, in fact, if I remember, not only does he do that, but it looks like he looks off camera and yells at somebody about something. Probably. Like to get the yes. door fixed or something. Yeah. Like you would do in a rehearsal. I, it, It's really funny to watch. And I, you know, I just borrowed it from you and I just watched it and I, I got... Halfway through it, having fun with it. And then about halfway through it, I started to think, oh, I feel really bad. I got sad. For, yeah. uh, yes. for them. Yes. When I think of Frankenstein on TV, I think of two sitcom-type shows actually running at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think of Lurch from the Adams Family, a very Frankenstein-esque sure. type of a character. Sure. But even more Frankensteinish because he, he was Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think of Herman Munster Absolutely. from the Munsters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which was produced by Universal, right. so they had the rights to the makeup. I was a huge fan of that show when yes. I was younger. In fact, I remember when I was growing up, we would watch reruns mm-hmm. of it all the time. And then I want to say in the mid to late 80s, they tried to relaunch the show. They did. 
I remember liking it. I bet if I went back and watched it, I bet it's pretty terrible. I don't it recall didn't it. didn't last very yeah. long. But at the same time, the, the Adams Family also tried to do a revamp. I, I, they were almost the exact same title, too. It was The Adams Family Today and, and The Monsters, Monsters Today. today. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. No, neither neither right. revamps were, were I think very there good. Were, there were two revamps of the Munsters. If I remember right, there was one that John Shuck played Herman Munster, but then later, I want to say it was somebody like um, Edward Herman. Edward yes. Herman did the one that we, okay. that we, we had yes okay. when we were kids because yeah. he actually tried yes. to do, to do Fred, Fred Gwynn's. Gwynn. Herman the way that he's supposed to be yeah. done. Well, yeah. and technically, if you want to go to that point, technically then there was another reboot that only had a TV movie about two years ago, and from what I hear, right. it was terrible. And it, it aired, I didn't see it. Yeah, it was... Uh, J- Jerry, Jerry O'Connell, O'Connell was, was Herman. To play Herman. That's right. And, and they didn't. Eddie it wasn't Izzard, a comedy. It wasn't a no, comedy. It was, it it was, was like a dark, dark. Yeah. It aired on Halloween. I believe you're right. It was right. supposed yeah. to be a pilot. No. And it it bombed. Yeah, he was Jerry O'Connell was Herman, huh. and he didn't look anything like Herman Munster. I think he, he had just like had a, a scar, a small scar on on the oh. top yeah. of his forehead. I'm like, and what are we trying to do here? Eddie Izzard was was Grandpa, and he looked like he was a, oh I don't know, he looked like he had stepped out of a hard rock metal show of yeah. some sort he had like weird eyeliner and i mean it was just i mean i i like eddie izzard but it did that one didn't work the yeah. adams family had a more successful redo with the yeah yeah Julia. yeah and of definitely. course the broadway musical right right well, and speaking yeah. of broadway musicals frankenstein actually had a broadway musical yes, that's right fairly that recently was, that yep. did not fare mm-hmm. oh you're, you're talking well. about i'm talking about the the older the one. older one mm-hmm. i'm talking about the one that had how, how many preview showings and but only ran one night on Broadway? Yes. Yeah, nineteen eighty one. Now wait a minute, the one you're talking about by uh, Victor Giel. Oh, it's not a musical. It's not a musical. Oh, no. I thought it was. That's this one That's here. This one oh. which had its premiere at the St. Louis Repertory Theater. Really? In nineteen seventy nine, an adaptation by Victor Gianella, who I believe is a local. Oh, or was nice. And um, it premiered here at the Rep and got. Excellent reviews. Oh, okay. Evidently, I don't know how much it was reworked for Broadway, but Mm. it was reworked for Broadway, and John Carradine was brought in to play the blind man. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, Keith Jochum, uh, a famous actor at the St. Louis Rep, who played the monster, also played it on Broadway. Diane Wiest was in it also. I think John Glover was in that, wasn't he? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, and uh, evidently the uh, they went for effects and for uh, very uh, high tech mm. type show, which supposedly were quite amazing, but it did not run long. Mm. No, wow. it, it did not have a successful run. I don't know what happened. Now, see, I did not realize that that the, that production that closed after one night. Mm-hmm. Was the production that premiered at the St. Louis Rep? Yes. I didn't realize that they were the same thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's I'd I, like to know exactly how much was changed between I would its premiere too. here. That I don't know. And yeah. When it got there, because yeah. I think something something had to have gotten lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Because how do you? How do you have honestly, a successful run? Yeah. In one theater for how long? But then and you then, get to yeah. Broadway and it's like it's a bomb. Yeah, no, we're, that, we're yeah. done. Yeah. It, w- was it produced by Bialy Stock and Bloom? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Maybe. That, right. Maybe. <laughs> well, at least Frankenstein is still out there. 
mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. He very much so, and has shown up in so many movies and uh, literature, comic books, comic television, books, cartoons, and of course there were short subjects in which Karloff appeared in makeup. Uh, there was supposedly a, a news footage of a Hollywood baseball game that in, involved people like Buster Keaton and, and Jimmy Durante and several other big stars, including Karloff, in full Frankenstein makeup oh, playing wow. baseball. I've seen photos. Wow, of that would be something. And uh, there have been other uh, uh, television versions, too. Uh, the, the, an early one in the 60s with Robert Foxworth and Bo Svensson. Right. There was and another then, one course, with Randy Frankenstein, Quaid. The unt- yes, there was one with Randy yeah. Quaid and Patrick Bergen as yeah. the doctor. And then Frankenstein, the true story, right, with Michael Sarazen and uh, isn't that uh, James uh, Mason? James Mason as Doctor James Mason, James Mason, Doctor Polidori type character. Okay, all right. I remember one uh, watching as a as a, uh, I gotta say early nineties uh, a Corman film, Frankenstein, Frankenstein Unbound. Unbound. Unbound, yeah, mm-hmm. Raul Julia mm-hmm. was Victor Frankenstein, right. but it had time travel involved because. John Hurt yes. travels back in time. Yes. What in the world Very am I watching this? Yeah. Yes. I mean, two great actors. And I think it was Corman's first film in like 20 years, wasn't it? As a director, something like that. Like something it had like been a long a director, time. Yeah. For him to come back and yeah. that's 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 what yes. he's coming back. Uh, okay. Yeah. Roger Corman, we salute you. <laughs> and then there was the movie The Bride. Ah. Uh, right. Right. Nancy Brown as the monster. That one Sting I remembered as the doctor. I remembered uh, well, and, and Jennifer Beale as <laughs> the bride. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think at that period of time you could have found a more beautiful woman right. to portray that character. Mm-hmm. I remember I, I had memories, just bits and fragments of that movie growing up, and I recently rewatched it because it, stre- it is streaming on Amazon Prime, folks. So if you're interested in watching Sting mm-hmm. act... Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely check it out. Uh, a lot darker than I remembered it, yeah. especially towards the end because Victor starts to get a little uh, handsy with his mm. creation, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Won't spoil the movie for anybody who really wants to watch it, but just to see Clancy Brown portray, uh, do another portrayal of the creature, mm-hmm. I've always loved Clancy Brown. And then, you know, if you're going to talk about movies, then of course there's the ultimate horror comedy spoof of young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mel Brooks' genius work of comedy. Mm-hmm. A beautiful combination, uh, a spoof of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein. Yeah. Thrown into one. And, I believe- With, uh, and a little bit of Ghost. Yeah. When you think about it, because yeah. they're, they're trying to transfer That's right. yeah. intelligence, yeah. so yeah. you're tossing in a little bit of Ghost of Frankenstein mm-hmm. in there, too. And I believe they use... Many of the same set pieces, don't they? Or, or recreated set pieces? Recreated them and used a lot of Kenneth Strickfadden's electrical equipment. Yeah. Okay. The tendrils of this book that have gone out and affected so many different films and television shows. But, you know, this thing that you brought up a minute ago that we haven't really touched on much yet is comics and art mm. and music and how the book has influenced that as well. I mean, Alice Cooper's classic song feed my frankenstein yeah which obviously <laughs> he would not have written if uh if we did not have this but comics i mean we have a, a superhero frankenstein character in dc comics and mm. we have he's well i guess he's not really a 
he's he's actually more of a villain, I guess, in the Marvel. In universe. the Marvel, universe. we have Frankenstein's yeah. monster is a is a villain in the Marvel universe. Yeah, and then you've got plenty of comic books that uh, either try to retell the story or update and mm-hmm. retell the story. Right. Various different ones by people like Mike Mignola, mm. and then. There's the classic adaptations of the novel that have been done in comic book form. Yeah. Marvel had a series, but then the most famous one, of course, is the Classics Illustrated right, yeah. edition. Probably the first one I ever read. I probably read that before. I'm sure I read that before I read the novel. Oh, oh really? Okay. Oh, okay. That's no. probably what sparked me. I was probably only like five or six when mm. I read the Classics Illustrated one. Yeah. And I'm sure I waited till 12 or so before I read the novel, before I could get into that. That is one of the best Classics Illustrated books that, that that are out there. And do you know Dell Comics? Part of their movie classics, or maybe part of the four-color movie classics, also had an adaptation of Frankenstein. The cover is Karloff, a painting of Karloff as the monster. It does not follow the Karloff movie. It's mm. almost its own version, but it's very well done, and the monster looks like Karloff. And it was part of a series. They did Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, The Mummy, and The Creature. I oh, wow. Oh, wow. And all from Dell Classics and uh, all the Universal Monsters. Different stories, mm. but those famous monsters. And I would, would love to see those. 63, oh, wow. 62, I want to say, somewhere in there. I would love to see those. I bet those are cool. Yeah. But th- there's literature, too, because that just reminded me of the book that you have that continues the Universal series. Yes, by Jeff Rovin. Jeff Rovin. Return I think it's of the Wolfman. Return of the Wolfman, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it is a direct sequel to Abbott and Costello, right. Meet Frankenstein, isn't it? left off. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much. Really? In Florida. It's a novel, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's played straight. It's not played for laughs like right. Abbott and Costello. But if you remember in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, the monsters are played straight. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's oh, just yeah. those two that are right. the, the, right. the comedy factor. Exactly, yeah. It's not a spoof like young Frankenstein. Mm. But uh, So this novel, Return of the Wolfman, picks up from there. I don't know how many years later. I don't know. There's I never even, read it. I keep meaning to borrow it. Book. To the, I must the, have this book now. There's references to the characters from Abbott and Costello. They talk of Chicken Wilbur. They talk of the insurance agent hmm. woman who, who is... Uh, uh, jo- uh, Joan... Joan Raymond. Joan Raymond. Yeah. Joan Raymond. In fact, if I remember right, the main character is her daughter. Oh, is it? I think, or something of, of that effect. Hmm. I, I just I know that, that we... It's been a while since I've read Yeah, it. I, I remember that you and I had discovered of his existence about yeah. 10 years ago or something yes. like that. Yeah. And it took us forever to find it. And I yes. remember one day we stumbled across a paperback edition somewhere yeah. in a used bookstore, I think. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. To this day, that's still the only copy of the book I've ever found. Yeah, if you're a fan of the Universal... Monster series. It's a must read. Return of the Wolfman by Jeff Rovin, R O V I N, who's a great writer. Most of the books he's written have been books on the history of the movies. Mm, Okay. So he knows what he's talking about. He knows his stuff then. Some great uh, uh, books like uh, coffee table type books. Giant coffee table books. I love those. Yeah. Yeah. On different things. But sadly, Frankenstein doesn't seem to be doing very well where film is concerned. Lately? Lately. Hmm. Most horror fans will know that over the last five years, Universal has been Mm -hmm. talking up, wanting to do a shared monster universe called Dark 
universe, dark universal. <laughs> and it was all about bringing back their classic monsters, but putting them in a modern setting. They basically wanted to have what Marvel has with a, a shared universe. And they've had a lot of starts and stops. Dracula Untold was supposed to be the start of the dark universe. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah. since that bombed, they were like, no, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, we haven't started yet. And then Tom Cruise in The Mummy. That was the beginning of the dark universe. And that bombed big time. Which gets a bad rap. I mean, I, I know it's not a Frankenstein film, but just as an offshoot, it's it's an enjoyable film. Mm-hmm. It's not a good film. I had fun with it. Right. Um, it gets a bad rap, and I think that there was the start of something. They just couldn't get it to couldn't get it to work right. Well, I'll I'll always for me personally, I'd rather watch Brendan Fraser fight the fight a mummy than Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. It seems now that the Dark Universe is pretty much permanently on hold, and we're never going to be able to see what could have been. I think really the the sad thing about it is is the fact that instead of making monster movies, we're making they were trying for action movies, yeah. and that's where yeah. you go wrong. Yes. Yeah, uh, I I can't I can't imagine Frankenstein's monster behind the wheel of a souped up Chevy right. racing down mm-hmm. the highway to mm-hmm. save the bride mm-hmm. from a deranged Mister Hyde. Right. But now that I'm explaining that, now I was going to say it, that actually can be kind head, of fun. <laughs> that might be that fun might work. comic book wise. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. it would probably work as a comic book. Yeah. And it was something that I definitely wanted to talk about is can these characters exist modernly and still be scary? I think in the hands of right the, the, the right people. Huh. Uh, you, you have to keep the gothic feel, no mm-hmm. matter how modern it becomes. I mean, let's face it, even the Universal series, the Frankenstein series, went in through the 1940s and took place during the 1940s, but yeah. it kept that gothic atmosphere, never once mentioning World War II. Well, right. yeah. Even yeah. though the monsters were existing in Germany. In oh, right. Good like point. Viseria, I didn't make that connection. And Viseria and yeah. all these different... Yeah. Uh, you know, Karlstadt and all these different yeah. places. And chronologically, it would have been the 1940s because there were cars, even though a lot of the old villages had horse and buggy still. Right. There was no mention of Nazi Germany, no mention of a war. Uh, you have to keep a Gothic feel. Mm. I think you can do that in a modern setting. And I think the, the perfect example of that is something like even though it's a 40-year-old movie now itself, John Carpenter's Halloween. Mm -hmm. That first Halloween Mm -hmm. is extremely atmospheric Mm -hmm. and and so well-directed that you could switch out. I mean, they call him the shape in the movie, Michael. And you could switch out Michael and that shape and put in the shape of the Frankenstein monster, Mm -hmm. and it would be just the same. Uh, yeah. It would right. work just yeah. as well because yeah. of the atmosphere. And I, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. And the They're, location is important. There are still wonderful locations in this day and age. Yeah. Small towns or even big cities like a New Orleans or something that has history yeah. to their setting. Right. There are places even in New York you could set it that uh, would still give it that feel of the other world. Mm. You have to have that other world feel. You can't point it to modern. I would love to see someone like a Guillermo del Toro or or even a James Wan 
take. Well, Del Toro was supposed to do Del Toro, the from the Black Lagoon. He was also supposed yeah. to do a Frankenstein. He was supposed to do a Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. 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 Obviously, he couldn't do it the way he wanted to, so he did Shape of Water. Instead. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, which was right. pretty much his version of the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. But even that movie has a feel to it. Yep. That That's what is, I mean. Uh, yeah. There's a fairy tale fabled, even though it's it's modern enough. Right. I mean, it's set in the 50s. Right. But it's, uh, or 60s. It, it has that fairy tale feel to it. And that's what you have to have because you're dealing with fairy tale characters. These are morality plays. Right, All right. these stories Frankenstein, Dracula, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Phantom, Mummy, Werewolf, and, yeah. mummy movies. They're, they're morality plays. And morality plays have always been successful in theater throughout the history of theater. Yeah. From the from the old religious plays of the fifteen hundreds, the morality mystery miracle plays, all the way up through Shakespeare, up to uh, modern plays, morality is is what these monsters are all about. Yeah, yeah, it's and what it's as teaching. Long as yeah, you keep that. I mean, if you turn them into superheroes, then it's something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially Frankenstein into a hero type character mm-hmm. doesn't really work. Uh, uh, continuing with comic books, Steve Niles has this great series called Criminal Macabre, which has a a detective who deals in supernatural stuff. And as the series has progressed, there was even a point in time where the main character, Cal McDonald, runs into Frankenstein's monster. And Frankenstein's monster, uh, the, the actual miniseries was called The Eyes of Frankenstein. And it was all about Frankenstein needing a new pair of eyes because the ones that he's got, he's going blind. Mm. Mm. So it was all about finding a fresh pair of eyes for for Frankenstein's monster in present day. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, we're still trying to keep the classics alive. But what I really want to know is what your favorite adaptation of Frankenstein is. Is it from television? Is it from movies? Is it from comic books like we've talked about? We've mentioned a lot. I know we've skipped over a lot too because, again, we don't need this to be a seven-hour podcast. So reach out to us at our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com and let us know what your favorite adaptation is. What we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some of our favorite performances and versions of both Dr. Frankenstein and his creature. And then we're going to pick the brain of an actor who not only, I think, could play a a marvelous Dr. Frankenstein, but has actually written a stage adaptation of Frankenstein himself. So we'll be right back. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be, ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. For most, Friday the 13th 
means Jason Voorhees. What a lot of people don't know, however, is that there was another Friday the 13th, the television series. Join your podcast hosts, Mike and Nick, as they review the search for cursed antique goods during a perspective review of Friday the 13th, the series. It's the Curious Goods Podcast. Check it out now at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. That's CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, to Two Guys Talking Horrors special episode about the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The men behind the monsters. Now, one would think, after 200 years, in several different adaptations, both film and television, there are a lot of people who have played both Dr. Frankenstein and his creation. And in some cases, multiple creatures, because uh, as we've mentioned, you know, the Hammer series, we had one Dr. Frankenstein, but he had a whole lot of creatures. Mm -hmm. And a lot of artists and other authors who mm. have lent their voice to right. the characters as well. And there's different versions. There's the the simple childlike creature. And then you have the not highly intelligent but intelligent I can I can talk plainly. Mm -hmm. We can have a conversation creature. And we are going to spend just a little bit of time going over some of our favorites. Obviously the biggest of them all is Boris Karloff. When I think of Frankenstein, that's, that's who I think of. That's who most people Even to of. this day, Boris Karloff's gaunt face, flat mm -hmm. top, doesn't matter how many different versions are mm -hmm. out there, it's always that black and white version of Karloff. Yeah. yeah. Every, every, every performance is compared to his. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny that, that he is, I mean, for me too, he is the, the bar. He's the barometer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When... So much of that movie is also, you know, owed to director James Whale. Right, And his right. vision of, of what the, the first couple Frankenstein movies were. Mm -hmm. And to Jack Pierce's... The makeup. Yeah, makeup, yeah. yeah. You know, oh, I mean, yeah. Pearson and Whale, I think, are almost just as influential in the history of Frankenstein as Karloff, but Karloff gets the attention. Right. I kind of wonder if it isn't because of Bride of Frankenstein. Well, there are more people the that, that feel that Bride is a better film I, than Frankenstein. I think it's one of those cases where the sequel's the sequel better. Yes, better. the sequel is better. Yes. 
It's the rest of the story. It is. Uh, yeah. Because the, the Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein film, is only a portion of the novel. And Bride of Frankenstein takes more of it and adds on to that. And it's a longer film, and it has more well-developed characters throughout. And, and the monster's character is, is developed. Yeah. And the performance that Karloff gives, I mean, that scene with, I don't know, I don't think they give him a name. I don't think he's called DeLacy in the, in the mm. film. I think he's just the blind, the blind hermit. hermit. The blind hermit, yeah. That scene, Karloff is so, so good in that scene. I mean, Karloff's oh. always good in everything, but that scene in particular, just rewatching it recently, I was just awed by how natural and real his performance was at a time when that's not really what actors did. Without dialogue. Without dialogue, yeah. Maybe a grunt or a word, but yeah. Yeah, he's incredible in the movie. Mm. Just incredible. He can jump from the pathos to the villainy and the horror of the character like that. Yeah. And because the makeup was so astounding, it, it didn't cover the face. It accentuated the face mm-hmm. he could act mm-hmm. with that makeup yes. yeah. when he was happy you saw the smile <clears throat> and you right. saw the face react to yeah. to the joy when he was angry it all just it it, it works unlike mm-hmm. putting on a big rubber mask or right. something mm-hmm. like that right mm-hmm. and i actually i find it funny uh because you know the, the novel he talks mm-hmm. he, he's articulate and Karloff never wanted the monster to speak. He was against that. He was very much against that, mm-hmm. but it adds to the character in that second film. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it's actually yeah. really important. Yeah. But if you notice, he never really talks like that ever again in the in the nope. uh, Universal films. Mm-mm. No. No, he was supposed to. Yes. <laughs> in, what was it, Ghost, I think? No, it, well, or, no. Frankenstein meets the Frankenstein Wolf. meets the Wolfman. That's the a one. Sequel yeah. to Ghost of Frankenstein, right. because mm. at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, the brain of Igor was transferred into the body yeah. of the monster. And the final scene, he uh, it's Lon Chaney under makeup as the monster, but, but Lugosi's voice coming right. out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he goes blind at the end of that. Because movie. the blood types weren't correct. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. And and so and Frankenstein is blind. is blind, but he's talking. And when we meet him in yeah. Wolfman, or Frankenstein meets Wolfman, right. still blind. Well, they never mention that. They never. They never, they never talk about it. No. That's, but he's but he plays the character right. like he is blind. And he was criticized for that because they thought that that's what started the lumbering, oh, arms lumbering out monster. And... But there was a logical reason for that. because And that was when Lugosi played it. Yes. Lugosi played the monster and was supposed to have dialogue. If you catch a couple of times in the film, yep. you'll see his mouth move, mm. but nothing's coming out. But when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because then it's not Frankenstein's monster. It's Igor in Frankenstein monster's body. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Igor was a despicable human yes. being. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Played beautifully by mm-hmm. Lugosi. Yes. So Who turned down the role originally? Originally, in he was up for Frankenstein, mm-hmm. but... but he, he was, there's no lines. There I don't. There's a screen test footage of him really? laid up as as the not in the Jack Pierce makeup. Ah, okay. The way I've heard it described is that it resembled Paul Wagner in the Gollum. Mm. Oh, oh, okay. Interesting. Something along no. those lines. Now, I don't know how much so, but huh? Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we I, I think we'd all agree that Lugosi is great. 
but Karloff as the original monster, especially in those first three Universal films, mm-hmm. sets the bar yeah. of how we view Frankenstein. Yeah. And I think the only other actor to play the creature as often as Karloff was Glenn Strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, who was coached by Karloff. I was going to mm-hmm. say who who comes off very much like Karloff's monster. However, Glenn Strange doesn't quite have the acting chops. Not that quite. Had, <laughs> Not quite. But uh, but there's enough but there the that comes through. Was so it, cut. Yeah. By that time. Yeah. Uh, by House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Actually, he does more acting in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein <laughs> than the other two. I, I think you're right. Yeah. Time. Yeah. And then Lon Chaney Jr. played him once. Lugosi yeah. played him once. Yeah. Actually, Lon Chaney Jr. played him twice because he makes an appearance in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Which I only one scene. I only just learned this recently. As the monster, really? Yeah, uh, in one scene when Glenn Strange twisted his ankle and could not do the shooting for that day, oh. and they were on a tight schedule, as you know, those Universal films. Lon Chaney, who had experience playing the monster, yeah. put on the makeup, and it's the scene where he grabs Lenore Albert and throws her out the window. Uh, in the laboratory scene. Oh, okay. And if you watch very closely, you can tell by the lumbering movement of the monster, it's Lon Chaney Jr. Well, and there you go, you folks. You have learned something. <laughs> Don't forget about uh, names further on down the line as the years went on. Christopher Lee, of course, mm-hmm. is probably... When I think of the Frankenstein monster, Karloff comes first. And for me, even though he only did it once, Lee comes second. For me, I don't know if that's just because I grew up watching the movies that sure. you wanted me to watch or sure. what. But uh, well, Lee was a very accomplished actor even by then, and particularly an accomplished mime artist. Mm. And he brings so much mime to the game. Mm-hmm. He right. tells so much through his body movement and his facial expressions, even though the makeup is very cumbersome. Yeah, yeah. And, and tends to get in the way. Lee's eyes still penetrate, and uh, he does quite a bit. With just face and body movement. Body movement. Uh, it was, uh, what, what, what was the documentary? Blood and Gore? Uh, Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood. Yes. Uh, he actually talks about his his acting method mm-hmm. for playing the monster. Since the monster was put together by spare parts, the way that he would move was every part was an individual. Yes. And it was they didn't know how to move together. Mm-hmm. So Almost. that's why he always did. Like talk, a freakish marionette. Yes. Talk about yes. physical control. Man. Yeah. Once again, proving how amazing Christopher Lee was. Well, think about the Hammer movies. He he was the first Frankenstein monster. Yeah. Dracula for all of the Dracula films. Mm-hmm. And he was also the mummy. Yes. Yeah. For, for their mummy remake. The big three. Yeah. yeah. I think the only other actor that, that spanned that many monsters would have been Lon Chaney Jr., right? Who played all four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who hit everything. And then you've got Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein, who, uh, again, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, in the Hammer movies, Baron Frankenstein is the villain. Yes. And he just gets worse and worse mm-hmm. the, as, the, as the story progresses mm-hmm. because every single hor- uh, Hammer horror film where Frankenstein is concerned, it's a new monster. It's never the same monster twice, mm-hmm. which is brilliant when you're, when you're making a franchise. But I think, and again, this is giving credit to another person that doesn't probably get credit for influencing the Frankenstein myth. A, a lot of that could be could be due to the director of most of the Hammer Frankenstein films, or did he do all of Terence Fisher? Terence Fisher. Yeah. Terence Fisher yeah. is the name, but I know he did a, no, he did a large portion yes. of them. Yeah, the majority 
yeah. of mm-hmm. the Hammer Frankenstein films, right. which you can also, I think you can also tell, even though I haven't watched all of them, I've watched the first two, but I'm sure since there is a narrative with the same character, with the Baron coming back, we've talked off mic uh, before we started uh, recording today, how you can feel the progression mm-hmm. of the story because it is the Baron played by the same actor throughout these movies. Mm-hmm. And when you've got the same director also at the helm, you can have a nice yeah, universal it that, feel yeah, to it. Yeah, the same tone yeah. that, that permeates. And right, I, right. you know, I just think that somebody like Terrence Fisher, who probably is you know, very well loved over in England where, you know, he oh, yeah. made his career probably doesn't get enough attention here. No. Especially for his his influence in Frankenstein and horror in general. Yeah. But, Extremely prolific. Director. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a half hour TV hammer uh, Frankenstein. Really? A pilot for a TV series hmm. in the late 50s called Tales of Frankenstein. Interesting. Uh, it was produced in America. And uh, but they since they were going to do it, they contacted Hammer Films and wanted to know if uh, their writer Jimmy Sangster would uh, take the same chore and, mm. and write the pilot. Hammer agreed to it, and they sent Sangster over and Michael Carreras and some of the other people involved with Hammer, and they wrote a half-hour episode called Tales of Frankenstein, which was filmed and does exist, mm. and it stars the German actor Anton Diffrin who made several Hammer films, including The Man Who Could Cheat Death, as Baron Frankenstein. And the monster, and since it was made in America by Universal, the Karloff makeup was available. Oh. The monster was played by Don McGowan. Huh, okay. Whose name you probably are not aware of, but he played the creature from the Black Lagoon in The Creature Walks Among Us. Interesting. As well as many other films. Mm. He was more of a... Of a very tall Clint Walker type of Western okay. actor, mm. and uh, he plays the monster in very similar Karloff makeup, yeah. uh, probably resembling Lon Chaney's version more than anything. Uh, it was a half-hour pilot film that just never sold. Oh, now did Terrence Hammer got so discouraged they dropped it and went back to England? Uh, <laughs> and did Terrence Fisher have anything to do with that too? I wonder. I. I don't think so. I think he was approached to direct, but then they didn't get him. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if he had spent enough time in Castle Frankenstein back yes. then. Yeah. <laughs> he did not want to go to America necessarily. Well, yeah, that could be. This. Yeah, yeah. Tales of Frankenstein. Interesting. Tales of Interesting. Frankenstein. It might be on YouTube. Okay. No. Well, and then there's, you know, of course, the names that, that left their mark. We've mentioned Mel Brooks and... Mm-hmm. Gene Wilder and Peter Boyle, and of course you can't, you know, forget any of those guys who have added their mark. And Kenneth Branagh and Robert De Niro. Kenneth Branagh and Robert De Niro, yeah, who I guess left their mark. I suppose they left, <laughs> they left a mark. Yeah. Uh, when you when you call your movie Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and you do that, and you're not, and you're not <laughs> following <laughs> the book, and, but it's, it's the a, same way I felt about Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. Yes, there was only one good thing about that movie: Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. And both movies, you know, I, I enjoy both of them. I own both of them. And I, I enjoy watching Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but I don't, I mean, it is not Frankenstein. It's not Frankenstein. It's not the book. It's not, and for a movie that proclaimed to be so true, it is not. But, but because of that, but, but it does actually have things that had never been shown. Yes, it does. In some of the previous films mm. that were from the actual book. So I guess for that, 
I I tip my hat and thank you, Kenneth Branagh. Thank you, Kenneth Branagh. But then other than that, it's like <laughs> you took way too many liberties. I, mm-hmm. I, nothing wrong with De Niro, but De Niro is the creature. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, uh, no, yeah. I'm sorry. No, just did he have just, a New no. York accent yeah. too? Uh, Frankenstein. I've, uh, <laughs> you know, I heard some things. I've heard things. Uh, <laughs> I want him dead. Yeah, his family <laughs> dead. <laughs> I want his castle burned down to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Uh, I think for me, outside of out of outside of the Hammer guys and the Universal guys, the name that left a big mark on the Frankenstein myth to me is Bernie Wrightson. Mm. I don't know if you guys ever seen a hardcover edition of the novel that was released, gosh, 10 years ago maybe, something like that, 15 no. years ago. It's an oversized hardcover release of the book itself. Mm. So it's beautifully put together, but it's every, I don't know, 10 to 15 pages is a full-page illustration oh, okay. of that moment in the book by Bernie Wrightson hmm. with that amazing, amazing sketch and line work. And I mean, the stuff that he was doing on Swamp Thing in the 70s, he just perfected for this book. Right. And I, mm-hmm. yeah, I I kick myself all the time because it was one of those books that I've always told myself, I've got to get that. I've got to get that. And then I was going to finally buy it about a year ago, and it is out of print. (laughs) So I'm going to have to try to find a used copy. But it is, if you ever get a chance, I think there's a a comic book that came out years later that Steve Niles wrote called Frankenstein Alive Alive, which is a sequel Mm. to Mary Shelley's novel. Mm. And um, Steve Niles wrote it, and he got Bernie Wrightson to do the art. And, of course, it's that same kind of art style that's in the book. But the book, the the illustrated edition, boy, it is gorgeous. If you ever see it, it just, at least flip through it. Go online and go to Google. Do yourself a favor and look at those beautiful Bernie Wrightson illustrations, especially the two-page spread of the laboratory, which is amazing. It's really, really mm-hmm. something. I'm, and, and I think you'll agree with me, Jason, because the, the, the film was kind of a resurgence of everything we loved as 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 kids with the old movies and then modern day monster squad yeah when i think of a modern frankenstein's monster i think of tom Noonan's tom Noonan. performance mm-hmm. as the monster in the monster squad yeah. and and we won't spend a lot of time talking about the monster squad because we actually have an episode diving deep into our love of that film we pick it apart and put it back together much like dr frankenstein himself yes. and and we 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 give it so much love and we'll, I'll make sure that uh, there's a link to that episode on our show notes for this episode. So definitely check it out if you love the Monster Squad. But other than that, we really don't have, in, in my mind, we haven't had a really good interpretation of the character recently. Not in a long time. You know, you, we've talked about Fred Gwynn uh, as Herman Munster. Mm-hmm. Great portrayal, but, but, you know, the lovable idiot. Right. I think the only thing close to what the book would have maybe where Shelley might have been proud. Uh, I, I'm not sure if either one of you have seen it, but the show Penny Dreadful. I have not yet. It was on I Showtime. To. Yes. It's on Netflix yeah. now, or at least it was the last time I, I, I saw. Mm-hmm. I own all three seasons. I, I, I was talked into watching it by a friend who said it's it's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for the Monsters. And mm-hmm. I'm like, whoa. Okay, well, that's intriguing. 
and I start watching it, and it is. In surprising ways, you have all of these great gothic literary characters brought together to fight an even bigger evil. Hmm. And not only is Dr. Victor Frankenstein in the show, but his creature as well. Described long black hair, Hmm. the pale face, Uh the patched work together, and all about wanting revenge. And if you don't create me a bride, I'll kill everybody around you. Do you know who plays it? Yes, actually. Uh, Rory Kinnear. Am I saying that right? Rory K-I-N-N-E-A-R. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Kinnear. So Rory Kinnear. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely fabulous job as that character. Brings the pathos. You know what? Actually, I would I would have to say that it's the closest thing to having the original Universal Monsters back, mm. and it's mm. period too. Yes. it also takes That's place good. in the period in which it was. Mm. It was. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna have to. I I don't yeah. know why I've waited. I'm gonna have to start watching yeah. that show. Season two goes off the rails just a little bit. Doesn't really focus on any of the real monsters, but season one and season three were very much the monster stuff. And unfortunately, even though it didn't go on to season four, there was stuff in season three that was leading up to a possible encounter with Emotip. Oh, wow. Yes, a a character leaves London to start an expedition in Egypt because they've just discovered the Hmm. tomb of Emotep. So I'm like, I'm like, you're not telling me you were only going to do three seasons of this show yes. and, and have that in, in like the first two episodes of your third season. Screw you. You're <laughs> a liar. Yeah. You just didn't want to do it anymore. The poor mummy always got gypped. He never got yeah. to meet any of the monsters. Well, you also think Universal about series. Uh, and the creature. The creature. Yeah, the, the creature. The creature came along too, yeah. afterward. Yeah. I mean, he was the last of the monsters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know but they they're count. all there in Monster Squad. They are. They are That's all true. there in Monster That's Squad. That's true. They but do all get again, to meet them. In Monster Squad, the mummy and the creature really don't do anything. No, they get movie. the short end of that stick yeah. in that one, too. Well, yeah. the mummy was supposed to be in House of Frankenstein. Oh, really? Yeah, that was part of the mm-hmm. original script in House of Frankenstein. Uh, at the beginning, when Karloff and Jake Harrow Nash escape from the prison and meet up with George Zuko, Professor Lampini's Chamber, Chamber of, of Horrors, Horrors mm, yes. where the uh, skeleton of Count Dracula is, also... He was supposed to have the mummy of Chorus. Oh, okay, okay. In his collection, I don't know where they were going to go, but they felt that it would have lengthened the movie. And of course, by yeah. that time, the Universal Monster movies were B movies. Well, yeah, you d- yeah. You couldn't exceed 75, 80 minutes. So, that would have been pushing it. Most of them yeah. were maybe about seventy, 60, yeah, yeah, sixty or seventy. Yeah. yeah. So That's the a mummy shame. was dropped. Poor mummy. Yeah. Well, I mean. Because there's Tom Cruise is the mummy. Tom Tyler was, you know, that that's again. a jip there too to the the poor <laughs> mummy. Yeah. We want to know who you feel portrayed both Doctor Frankenstein and his creature the best. Well, who's your favorite? Is it Peter Boyle and Gene Wilder from Young Frankenstein? Always a good choice. Uh, is it Tom Noonan from The Monster Squad? We want to know. Reach out to us at our website and let us know. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot of other other more recent names yeah. that have left their mark either on screen or creatively behind the screen, which maybe is leaving the door open for a new name to maybe, be added. Maybe John Contini. That oh, that's a perfect name that could be added. That yeah, sound very horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Some leftover Italian guy.
A chat with an original monster kid. Now we teased this at the very beginning of the podcast, and we thank everybody for sticking with us. Uh, I mentioned that John has written a stage production of Frankenstein, and well, guess what? We're going to find out all about that right now. Now and it's an exclusive, folks. <laughs> so get your ears on and listen up. So first, before we get into the script, tell us a little bit more. I mean, we we've touched mm-hmm. about it a lot, but tell us a little bit more about growing up with oh. the original Universal stuff and then the yes. Hammer stuff and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Just you know, and, and as I said before, I love being called a monster kid. That term <laughs> is it's just so much fun because growing up in the 1950s and 60s. If you were a monster kid, what it meant was you read magazines like Famous Monsters, mm. you collected them, and I have a almost complete set of oh, the first wow. 178 issues, oh. or 73 issues, is it? 78? I've forgotten. Of Famous Monsters, I'm missing four issues out of that run. Uh, I used to collect the, uh, the competitors at that time, okay. of which there were many. One, probably the, one of the best, the magazine Castle of Frankenstein, okay, which ran for a good 30-some-odd issues by Calvin T. Beck, and uh, who wrote the book, Heroes of the Horrors. Mm. There was Modern Monsters, Monster Mania, Mad Monsters. Uh, well, those magazines were the only way that... That fans could, could find get, anything out. I mean, yeah, there's no keep internet. Keep in mind, there was no right. internet. There was no, no entertainment tonight yeah. shows <laughs> or anything. Like, videos, DVDs. Yeah. And you Instead of the wait. instant gratification that we get by looking things up on the internet right now, you yes. had to wait month to month. month to month. And how exciting that must have been to get a new Famous Monsters and get your first look of so-and-so in the makeup. The Famous Monsters that my brother and I, my brother who was four years older than me, we would traipse down to the local drugstore to buy our local comic books, yeah, yeah. DC, Marvel, whatever was around at that time, movie comics. And one day we walked in there, and there sitting on the magazine stand was a magazine called Famous Monsters. It was issue number nine, and it had the cover of Vincent Price, uh, a painting, Basil Gogos painting, of mm. Vincent Price from the House of Usher. Mm. And okay. our eyes just went to it immediately. <laughs> Boom. And we grabbed 35 cents. Oh, wow. wow. 35 cents for it. <laughs> we bought it, and we've been buying them. I've been buying them ever since. Uh, went back and got the ones I miss. I mm-hmm. tried to. I still do not have issue number one. Oh. Uh, I think it sells for like $1,500. Oh, so the I don't holy think I'll have it any too soon. But I do have issue number two. I've managed to pick a oh, copy wow, of that okay. up at a reasonable price. Uh, so Famous Monsters, Castle Frankenstein, Modern Monsters, and the other magazines that Warren published along with Famous Monsters, Screen Thrills, Illustrated, Wildest mm. Westerns. And then having that material to read, you would wait for Friday or Saturday nights when Chiller Theater, yeah. Shock mm. Theater came yeah. on TV, and you could watch these movies that you read about. I read all about Frankenstein and the Wolfman before I saw any of the movies. <laughs> Of course, the Hammer films, as a little kid, our parents wouldn't let us go to them. Right. They heard that Horror of Dracula and Curse of Frankenstein were too gory for kids <laughs> to see. So I didn't see those till I was a teenager many years later. But the Universal one, I can remember the first night I watched Frankenstein meets the Wolfman on one of these chiller theaters. Was that the first shows. you saw? Was that the first? I think that's the first 
Well, the first Frankenstein movie I saw on TV. A couple of years before that, I remember going to the drive-in with my family to see a triple feature. I don't know what the first two movies were, but we stuck around for the third feature, mainly because it was a reissue of The Son of Frankenstein. Oh, oh okay. Nice. On drive-in screen. So seeing these old movies and then waiting for the new ones to come out and then add to that collecting Aurora monster models. Oh. It was a big thing for the monster yeah. kid. You yeah. didn't have the posable toys back then. No. The, uh, the figurines that are all over the place. You had plastic model kits that sold for like $3 a piece. Mm. And you had to hand paint them and glue them together. And I still have the main famous monsters, uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy, the, the complete creature, uh, Phantom of the Opera, Bride of Frankenstein, mm. King Kong, Godzilla. So Aurora Monsters was a big thing being a monster kid. You collected photos. You made scrapbooks. Right. You read whatever you could about it. I'm going to embarrass him a little bit here, too, because I know a little bit more about him than other people would. <laughs> he also I, got so into it, and I, I, Nick, you probably did this. I know I certainly I did. I became a monster. Well, he, he created his own Famous Monsters magazine. He was such <laughs> a monster kid. And what was it called? Because you still have them. Uh, greatest monsters of the movies something like that and it was it was all it was all fabric i mean it was all well, like yeah. imagined, imagined stuff of you and your friends and, and uh, my brother and my friends and i we make imaginary movies wow. made up our own monsters using some of the uh, famous ones too you know uh, we would create our own characters like the axe man that was a very yeah. famous monster <laughs> and we would have frankenstein meets the axe man and things like that. Well, you and, did like nine or ten issues of it, didn't you? Uh, Something like yeah, that? Yeah, like 12 yeah. or 13. Yeah, hand-drawn yeah. and hand-typewritten. <laughs> you didn't have oh. computers. Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> no, typewritten. typed into a little frame, and uh, my brother would do all the, the writing, and he would leave spaces for me to do the drawings, and I would, uh, looking back at them now, and I have not too long ago looked at them, they're pretty awful. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when we were young, we thought they were pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. We would spend a whole evening just writing and drawing these things mm. uh it was part of being a monster kid other sure. i'm sure other kids well yeah back then had you had to use your imagination a hell of a lot more than kids have to do today yeah. oh we would buy the eight millimeter movies too Ooh, oh that, right yeah. that's I right we have some of those you know 20 minute version of the son of frankenstein on eight millimeter mm. no sound you put it well. in a silent projector there was printing on the screen and, uh, I mean, I knew Son of Frankenstein by heart before I saw the full movie, probably, <laughs> wow. in the 8-millimeter film. Wow. Mm. Being a monster kid it was all part of that. And then you would wait anxiously for the next Hammer film or the next Ray Harryhausen movie that uh. came out or the next uh, American International Poe picture. That was all part of the 50s and 60s. Mm. It, was, uh, it was a fun time. Or anytime Toho would put out a oh, I was a big a Toho giant fan. monster movie oh, with yes. Godzilla. Yep. What what part of Tokyo are you destroying mm-hmm. this time, Godzilla? Yeah, right. Yep. When I first saw Rodan in the theaters, the first color Toho film. Wow. Uh, it actually gave me nightmares. Oh, really? really? Yes. The, the sequence in the beginning with the miners in the mine being eaten by the giant bugs. Mm, okay. It was pretty terrifying for a kid, uh, eight or nine years yep. old. Well, huh. Yeah. And, uh, I don't like yeah. small bugs, much yeah, less giant yeah, bugs. I hated bugs. Bet Grandma loved that. <laughs> oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Because we would make Mom and Dad drag us to I'll these bet. movies uh, sure. <laughs> until we were old enough to yeah. take the bus and go downtown and see wow. ourselves. 
Well, tell us about your your love of Frankenstein and why you decided mm. you had to create an adaptation yeah. for for is this for stage or is this for film? This is for stage. For or stage. It was originally, yeah, it is for stage. It's it's a stage play version of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And I think and I feel it's the closest to Shelley's novel okay. of any adaptation anywhere. Mm-hmm. It follows the novel almost scene for scene. Now, obviously, if you're taking a 200, 300-page novel and turning it into a two-hour entertainment, a lot does have to fall by the wayside. Right. But there is a lot of description in the novel that if you get past and get to the scenes, yeah. a lot of the dialogue comes straight from the novel. Mm-hmm. Not quite as archaic, but very, very close to uh, to the novel. And the storyline is exactly the same. And, and I even have an introduction that is given by Mary Shelley herself. Oh, wow. That's, the I think, the coolest thing, I think, Which about... Is something different. That's yeah, that's, that's so... Done in no, that's version. so well, different. Well, Bride of Frankenstein, you have the, the little Shelley's bit at the beginning. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of part of the inspiration. I was inspired, obviously, by the novel and mm. wanted to create a play version, being in theater and being an actor and director myself, I always wanted to do a version of Frankenstein that was faithful, more faithful than any other one. So there's no Fritz Hunchback character. (laughs) There's there's no Igor. There's, uh, um, I mean, the bride is created, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't live like in the the novel. Although the minor characters are taken right from the novel. There are no no Dr. Pretorius, Mm -hmm. no added characters from any of the film versions. And the monster is not called the monster. He is called the creature or the demon, as he is in in the novel. Mm -hmm. And it even starts after the Mary Shelley introduction, it starts with Captain Walton and the ice scene on the ship. It's uh, it could be staged very effectively at a high cost with special effects. Mm. Sure. And nowadays, a lot of it can be done with projection. I'm sure. Oh, okay. Wouldn't, wouldn't be as as difficult to stage. It's a, a cast of about 14, mm-hmm. but with doubling, you could probably get it down to seven because there are some characters that appear in only one scene. And they right. Obviously. Appears another Mary Scheller herself, who only appears in the first scene, can double as Justine or as the bride's mate. Yeah, uh, the uh, the, uh, cr- the creature's, creature's bride. Mate. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, in the later scene, so you can do a lot of doubling and tripling in it. the The script is about 117 pages. It was produced on a high school level. Um, uh, once it's once. the only production once. right and and you were in it i was you played young william that's yep. how little you were at that oh, time wow okay you got to be killed by the monster that's right i remember it was the first time yes. i had uh stage fright probably uh because i i remember i think it was opening night you? Or, yeah. it was one of the stage first <laughs> uh-huh. one of the one of the first opening nights or yeah. something and i um yeah. it was right before the the monster or the demon comes out from under yeah. the bridge yeah. and i blanked Completely yeah. blanked. Which is and a I scene just... right out of the novel as yep, well. Yep, yep. Yeah, he's the, he's the, referred to the, as troll the troll or something. The yeah, right. Yes. And one of my favorite scenes in the novel, which is very rarely, or maybe it's never been recreated, I'm not sure, is when uh, Victor meets the demon. Mm-hmm. And they have a lovely dialogue scene Yeah. That uh, is always skipped in every version. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great scene. the climax scene. of Act One mm. for my play play version and uh then the other characters too and it goes all the way up through to the ending with the back to the walton ship it has been a long time since i've 
read the script and and me too. Thirty years or so <laughs> since I was in the yeah. show, but yeah, I, I so I can't. Thirty years old. I can't remember. Do you go into detail in the script describing the creation scene of what you would like theaters to do for the creation scene, or like Shelley, do you leave it kind of open to every theater to do their own? Yeah, pretty much that method because depending on the budgetary issues sure. of each theater. Sure. Um, I mean, some things are described, decided to go with as a suggestion of having the creature hanging up. And I believe that's what we did when, when yeah, we produced Yeah, I remember it, that, yeah. Which isn't really mentioned in the novel, I don't think, that he's hanging. But uh, visually, that, that has an impact. Scientifically, pretty much like the novel, it doesn't go into any detail as to how scientifically it, it is created. And again, suggestions for the makeup mm. of the monster, the demon, uh, is pretty much left up to each theater. The description from Shelley's novel is pretty much the starting point. And uh, you can go from there. I would prefer, you know, each theater can do what they want, but I would prefer the long hair, mm -hmm. the yellow pale mm -hmm. skin, the veins possibly showing through. But not only is it faithful to the novel, it is also in many ways a homage to the Universal series. There are references, or what do they call them now, Easter eggs? Yeah, yeah. In, in, uh, in film. There are some of those moments throughout the play that make uh, a reference to some of the stuff in the Universal film. Like one huh. of the characters, and I don't remember which one it is, it might be the police inspector or whatever, tends to use the same phrase that Dr. Pretorius would use in The Bride of Frankenstein about talking about, oh, smoking, it's my only weakness. It's my only weakness. Yeah. <laughs> drinking, it's my only weakness. Mm. And there's even a reference in the beginning, Mary Shelley's uh, introduction, which comes from her own introduction, but the final words also hark uh, uh, back to the opening warning of the 1931 film version when Edward Van oh, Sloan yeah. appeared mm. in front of the curtain and talked to the audience telling them to um, beware of what they're about <laughs> to see because it may shock you, it may terrify, it might even horrify you. And, well, well, we warned you. <laughs> <laughs> so that is kind of used as well. So there are references to the universal as well as... Uh, uh, talking about a screenplay, I would love to see it done as a screenplay. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how commercial it would be. I, people s tend to stay away from the novel. They don't want to yeah. because of some of the philosophical discussions. I, I don't think it reads too statically. I think it, uh, some of the discussion between Victor and the monster, I think are very alive and very pertinent today. Yeah. If only I, I, we I knew think, any filmmakers that could... I think, could, uh... I think a filmmaker... <laughs> I think, I think of, uh, an ambitious filmmaker or two that uh, had the time <laughs> and the, the passion, maybe fellow monster kids. <laughs> uh, I wonder if, if possibly Archlight and Pirate Pictures, I, I wonder if they wouldn't... Oh, those guys. Those guys, you know, the, yeah. the people who have brought us such films as Shadowland and... Four color eulogy. Huh. Uh, well, maybe you could pass my script on. Oh, well, we know we know a couple of them. We know a couple want. of them. <laughs> no. We know a couple of them. 
Uh, I think I think what what we definitely need more of is, and this is just of course my opinion. I enjoy all all type of horror. Where I mean, we're sitting in my studio, mm-hmm. which is also my little man cave, where all of my movies are, are showcased, and half of my collection is horror films. So I love a little bit of everything. My thing is, is that where these monsters are concerned, I love the original portrayal of them, the gothic feel, yeah. mm-hmm. because yeah. you take away all of the BS of modern day, yeah, and you, you it's it simplifies things. Yeah, I would I would love for somebody to come along and make a classic adaptation of the book, not a remake of an old film that's already no. come out, not. I'm going to call it Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but not really do Mary Shelley's mm-hmm. Frankenstein. I think this right here would be the perfect way to help celebrate another hundred years of this story. Start it all over. Again. Start it all over. And and right don't, here, right now. Instead of a new take. Let's go I to the old take. If it ain't broke, yeah. don't fix a it. New take on Frankenstein. I'm going to reimagine Frankenstein. No, that you don't need to reimagine anything. Yeah. The original is just fine. And I would say don't drop the subtitle. Mm-hmm. I think the subtitle is so important. I think that she gave Mary Shelley, being she, uh, gave the book a subtitle for a reason. Right. Rather than just calling it Frankenstein or Dr. Frankenstein or Victor mm-hmm. Frankenstein, she purposely put a modern Prometheus as the subtitle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we said when we started this podcast, many novels that get printed now drop the subtitle off the cover. You have to go to the title page to find mm-hmm. it. I don't know. Maybe it exists. Maybe it's out there. I don't know. I personally don't know of any film version that uses the subtitle. I, I, and I just, I don't understand. It's part of it. It's, it's part of the whole Frankenstein package. Yeah, well, yes, I, I totally agree. The problem is, is that most moviegoers, most book readers, e- even if you are interested in reading that, there's a whole lot more reading to do Well, to figure out what a modern Prometheus is. Luckily enough, you have this podcast. That's right. Because <laughs> we explained go. all that at the yep. beginning of this podcast, so there's no more scratching your head, what does this mean? And I think that is a perfect way for us to end our celebration and and it really is it it, it is a celebration we've been preparing the, for this podcast for what months really i mean months, we've been yeah. talking about it for months for 200 years for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 200 years mm-hmm. finally it has come to light and we hope that you've enjoyed it we've enjoyed bringing it to you until next time i'm nicholas j hearn one of your hosts i'm jason contini co-host i'm john contini just an old friend And this monster kid will definitely be joining us again in later episodes. Until next time, folks, don't be afraid of the dark. Be afraid of what's in the dark. Congratulations. You've survived this episode of Two Guys Talking Horror. We hope you were entertained and informed by our program. Take what you have learned and pass it on to your family and friends. It may just save their lives someday. Have questions? Comments? Suggestions for a future episode? Visit our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com 
click anywhere on the right-hand side, and fill out our short web form. It's the easiest way to interact with the hosts. Beware of monsters, creatures, and all things that go bump in the night. And keep telling yourself, it's only a podcast. It's, it's only, only a podcast. podcast. It's only a podcast. It's, it's only, only a podcast. podcast. It's only a podcast. It's, it's only, only a podcast. podcast.